Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. I've got a full morning and I can't wait to bring you more impactful conversations. Following on from Kylie Ann Cooney last week, talking about the Love Grace appeal, I speak with Susan Barker from Women's Refuge. and We'll discuss the reality and the real harms that women are facing today and how we can help. I then crossed the Tasman to talk with Ramesh Thakur, Emeritus Professor and the author of the book Our Enemy, the Government, How COVID Enabled the Expansion and Abuse of State Power. We'll discuss governmental overreach, the global political climate, and I'll get his thoughts on the upcoming Indian and American elections. Marty, of course, will stop by for Media Matters, and we'll look into the media stories that caught our eye and zoom out to the bigger themes behind them. Welcome to Kiwi Farm, established 1840. Nigel, Kiwi Farm's wise old pack horse and resident guidance counsellor, was busy. The change in management at the farmhouse and the ripples that resonated through all the styes and wallows were keeping a steady stream of business through his door. Currently, he was working hard at trying to stay focused at the beautiful Persian cat seated across from him. She was busy preening and immaculately groomed, but was in a power of trouble. Glory had experienced a huge fall from grace. Before the election, she had a seat at the farmhouse table and it was a beloved member of the free-range pigs coven, but Glory had a dirty little secret. She was a cat burglar. 
Glory had been caught visiting a variety of sheds, stables and silos and stealing feed and other trinkets, some at great expense. And even though she received more than her fair share for her work in the farmhouse, Glory had been caught not once, not twice, but now four times. Nigel's intervention had been called upon. As Glory finished licking between her perfectly manicured paw and claw, she sighed up at Nigel. Am I done here? You may go, Glory. I will see you again same time next week. And please remember not to touch anything that doesn't belong to you, Nigel said resigned suspecting his words were falling on deaf ears. Next through Nigel's door was Weijin, a whiny wee sow who did not take the election loss graciously and had become quite abusive to her colleagues around the farmhouse. What had led her to Nigel's office today was a conversation she'd had with one of the rams, loudly and forcefully spreading rumours and lies about her opposite in Oinky's team. This was not Wee Jin's first misdemeanour. She was prone to outbursts and had forged a well-worn path to Nigel's door. Nigel internally groaned. When he saw her arrive, he braced himself for an hour of righteous indignation, followed by advice he knew inevitably would not be followed. Nigel's final appointment was with Squealer. After losing the election, Squealer had decided not to keep Chippy company in the farmhouse crossbenches, and as he breezed into Nigel's office whistling, Morning, Nigel. What a lovely morning it is. Squealer had a smile as wide as his side, and he had a twinkle in his eye. Well, what brings you to me in such an ebullient mood, Squealer? asked Nigel. Squealer eased back into his seat and started regaling Nigel with his news of a new job. He was heading back to his home paddock, a green lush meadow settled by those from the old McDonald's farm. Squealer was beaming at his own brilliance. He was going to be in charge of his old school, lending his fiscal expertise and knowledge of unicorns and rainbows, plus the illusion of bulls being cows, sows being boars and rams being ewes. He was ecstatic. Well... That's certainly very good news for you, Squealer, responds Nigel sagely. What are you looking forward to most? Ha 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 cheese rolls, Nigel! I get all the cheese rolls I can eat! Well, on that bombshell, Nigel called it a day and decided to hunt out his old friend Winnie Ben for a scotch and a cigar and a spot of self-counselling at the back of the barn after a trying day with the animals on Kiwi Farm. Make sure you join me next week for Kiwi Farm, exclusively on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. 
This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Good morning, and you are with Reality Check Radio with Marie here on Counterculture. Joining me now is the Communication, Marketing and Fundraising Manager for Women's Refuge, Susan Barker. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Good morning. Thank you. It's so good to have you. I uh, spoke last week to Kylie-Anne Kearney uh, around the Grace Handbags for Grace appeal, Mm -hmm. which I know um, those come off to you at Women's Refuge. But we wanted to get you on for a longer conversation because uh, in recent weeks with the new changes with the coalition government, an announcement was made around uh, a new triaging system by police in terms of how they pick up and triage and go out to uh, domestic harm and violence calls. So walk us through that. I It was an astounding um, revelation and yeah. piece of communications from them. So what, what in your understanding, are the changes that the police are looking at making? So, I mean, when it was first announced, we were definitely extremely concerned. Um, we would not be happy at all if police stopped responding to family far, uh, family harm incidents. Um, I think, you know, we've gotten to a place where 20 years ago, if you rang police with a family harm incident, they would be like, oh, you know, sounds like a domestic, none of our business. So it's really good that we've actually gotten to a place where you can call police and no other agency really has the authority to respond like they do for us as a specialist service we can only intervene if a woman rings us and you know if it's life-threatening you know sending an advocate out is quite dangerous Mm. um initially we were really taken aback but we did um we do have a relationship with police so we've since had some conversations with them and it seems like they are going to pull back mostly in the mental health space and when it comes to disputes between siblings and that type of thing. Um, The police commissioner made it clear to us that he has no intention in pulling back from, you know, family harm as we deal with it between, you know, a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are hopeful, you know, that 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 is the case. And we can completely understand that, you know, we have a limited resource when it comes to police and there are a lot of family harm call outs. So it's kind of one of those things where we feel reassured talking to the police commissioner now, not good that not everything's mm. being responded to, obviously, but yeah, I mean, that's that's where we're at at the moment yeah. with that so, one. Yeah, so in terms of, so what would constitute a family harm call-out? Sort of describe those for us. So essentially it could be in our context, you know, anything really. I mean, I think what's hard is if you're looking at it from a police perspective of has a crime actually been committed here? But in our view, if anybody is ringing the police 
and they're that desperate to get somebody there to intervene, they do feel like they are in danger. I don't think anybody's going to ring the police because they're arguing, arguing over who's doing the dishes and it's just getting too much. Um, so I think a family harm call out is any instance where you're having a dispute with your partner or within your family where you feel threatened in a way that requires that response. I think there might be a breakdown in some cases when police arrive and there's no actual crime being committed. Um, if it's yelling, you know, yelling's not a crime, but it's it's the implication, you know, of what mm. that fear the other person's feeling. Um, mm. I also, yeah, I think that um, it's that, you know, they have a different mandate than we do. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's a sort of um, a burden of proof, isn't there? There's, there is very a very distinct line within legislation of, of things that need to be crossed. But I guess where you sit is you don't want that line ever to be met or crossed. Uh, you're in a place where you allow people to come as, as a preventative measure. So who are the ones, so in your situation, if you have someone who is, needing your assistance how do they generally do they reach out to you direct or are you getting most of your referrals via the police or other agency systems yeah so we do get police referrals so if they they do go to a family harm call out and there's no no crime being committed and the person is wanting our assistance we'll get referrals that way um often we get so we get around 50,000 referrals per year. Um, we get a lot of police referrals. And then we also have other avenues for women to reach out to us. They can call our crisis line. We have a web chat feature where they can just talk to a social worker immediately. They can email. They can just pop into their local refuge community office. So we've tried to make sure that we have a lot of ways that you could get in touch with us if you are looking for help. Mm. And I think it has to be said, you know, in when police respond to, and we understand this is, you know, not everybody's going to want to leave at that particular juncture. It might just be like things have gotten out of control um, and they just want it to stop. Whatever's going on, they want it to stop, but they might not be in a place where they're ready to, you know, press charges, walk away. And I can get that that can be frustrating because, you know, somebody responding to that is not a social worker, right? So, mm. yeah. So in terms of that, so, so when you have that kind of scenario, and I know my husband is a retired doctor, so and he would see these women um, come through his clinic. And the difficulty is, is that, as you said, it's got to be, led by the victim to be uh -huh. able to to move forward. So where do you have, do you have systems and networks? So if someone comes to you and they haven't quite made that step, that that's where they want to go, so they're there potentially as a pause um, to give them space, have you got other agencies that you're able to tap into to provide them with assistance or is it they have a pause and then they go back and then they're left a chance again. I mean, what's what sort of wraparound services are available for these women that need your help? So we actually will help and support women even if they want to stay. So that's not 
a deal breaker for us. It's actually quite common for women to use our services and then go back to the relationship. It often, I mean, on average, it takes seven attempts to leave. So we're wow. really aware of that. Um, so if someone is even still living with their abuser, we will still provide support, help them access counseling, you know, provide um in ways to MSD if they need support that way. Um, just help them the best we can until they're ready to make that decision. So in no way is anyone cut off because they've decided at the moment, you know, they don't want to leave. Mm. And I know it's it is hard for people to understand that, but I think in lots of ways women might feel Sometimes it's safer to stay. That sounds backwards, but you see these cases where women do ultimately leave and then they're murdered, right? Because that is when you're at highest, the highest risk of being murdered is when you finally decide to leave and that person's losing all their control. So you can see kind of what's on the line for women. And I often say to people, you know, even if you're in a marriage that doesn't or a partnership that doesn't feature abuse, think about how hard it is to untangle your life from somebody else's, even if there's, you know, not major financial things at stake. If you have kids, if you have pets, you know, it's it's a huge undertaking. And then on top of that, if you're afraid of this person and you're afraid of what they're capable of and what they might do. So, yeah, I mean, we will support women in every way that we can, even if they choose to stay with the abuser. Mm -hmm. 50,000 is a staggering number of referrals. Has that increased, decreased, remained static? What has it been like, say, over the last five to ten years? It's remained. um, We did see a ramping up. Um, probably six or seven years ago, it started to ramp up. But I think that was actually society changing to where it was okay to reach out for help. It was okay to talk about it. I think 20 years ago, having this on a, well, there wasn't podcast, but, you know, have, mm. talking about this so openly would have been more challenging. It was, you know, something that you kept secret. It was nobody else's business, what goes on in your own home. So we actually saw that as a positive, more women are reaching out um, for help. And not every person who reaches out for help is going to leave and continue down that track, as we talked about. But in the last four years, four or five years, we've seen that number remain steady. Um, so yeah, it it's remained fairly steady. New Zealand has the highest family violence rates in the developed world. So it's, um, yeah, it is staggering and completely unacceptable. So why do you think that is? Why us? Um, I mean, there is the technical argument that we do have really good reporting in New Zealand. So it could be that we we document a lot more than other countries about this happening. But at the end of the day, I do think it's it's a societal thing that we need to look at, you know. Um, I'll try not to rant on about patriarchy or anything like that, but it, it is a societal shift that needs to happen in New Zealand. Um, and, 
you know, if we had all the answers, we'd probably not exist because we could solve it. But yeah, mm. it is interesting. So in terms of uh, women feeling trapped, I know money is one of the things that traditionally always was wielded and used as a form of control. Now with the very connected digital life that we live in, it's very difficult to hide from anyone financially. I mean, back 20 years ago or even 30 years ago, if a woman was in a dangerous situation, you know, I just knowing people have been in this situation, they would have small jobs, gather a small nest egg of cash that was untraceable to basically give them a uh, an exit bundle to get out and, and start fresh if, if required. Well, that's a very difficult thing to do today. So is money still used very much as a lever to control women, um, both financially and psychologically in the home? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we see women come to us regularly who don't even have eyes on the bank account and they're working, they're in full-time employment, but their partner has taken control of the finances and usually by reasoning of I'm better with money, you're useless with money, I'll look after the money and these women are working or receiving some kind of income and never even seeing it, being given pocket money um, and being made to feel guilty for needing things to provide for themselves and their children. And like you say, in a digital age, it is much harder to hide like you say, a little fun to get you out. Um, and it's the digital age has even made it extremely hard to hide full stop. You know, you can track anybody's movements these days and what they do. We've even had instances where once women have left, they have been receiving child support from their ex and in the reference when you do a bank transfer they've said you know like f you or you know like mm. as just a little way to get back at them you know it's impossible to escape you know the digital world um one of the things when women come to us often they leave with very little. Even if the household does have assets, they don't have access to these assets. So they come with very little. And then it becomes a process of trying to set them up so that they know, have that financial literacy. So we offer budgeting advice. Um, we have relationships with almost every major bank in New Zealand so that um, our clients can set up a bank account with little ID. Um, and yeah, it, it's a major, major challenge. We do the best we can to set them up, but yeah, it's, it's pretty harrowing. Mm. Which actually then brings me to one of the misconceptions. I guess there's a misconception that to be, to call your services in, there has to be some form of physical violence, but that's not the case at all, is it? No, no, not at all. And physical violence is really the far end of the scale. It never starts with physical violence. Um, we often say to people, nobody goes on a first date and gets slapped and they're like, wow, I'm sure he's a nice guy, really. Um, it always starts as these manipulations, these little tactics to the point where you get to physical assault, it's not surprising to you, which sounds odd, but um, 
Yeah, most abuse occurs at that psychological level, that control, that eroding of someone's self-confidence. And I think all of us like to think, oh, that would never happen to me. But um, if you look at the way most relationships start, there's that honeymoon phase where you're so in each other's pockets and you're so in love. Well, that's not much different to someone who's establishing power over you. I mean, if you think about someone saying things to you when you first start dating, oh, can I just, what if we track each other on our phones so that I know you got there safe? I just worry that, you know, you're going to get in an accident. Can you call me when you get there so I know you're safe? And it starts out like that. And Mm. I think most people would have a very hard time telling the difference between, you know, that loved up feeling and being love bombed and charmed. And then once they have you over that line, things start to turn sinister. Mm. Mm. And it's really difficult because people you want to trust and women, you know, we have big hearts and we want to trust and and we want to be loved and, and to love and all of those sorts of things. So those, I guess, never, ever change. When so for in terms of referrals, because often you have uh, people close to you that will see things before you do. You know how they say love is blind. Mm-hmm. So how can and often do you have people come to you and say I'm concerned about my sister, my daughter, my friend, my cousin? But the, I guess there's a difficulty there for you, isn't it? I mean, in terms of a line being crossed because it actually needs the woman who's being affected to be the one that reaches out. You can't sort of intervene externally. So what happens if that's the case? If if you're that person and you're worried about somebody else um, and you don't know what to do, what's your advice? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we do get contacted by lots of mothers, sisters who would love for us to show up at somebody's house and intervene. And it does, we can't do that. And it doesn't work like that. Um, I think the biggest thing I would say is to not be judgmental. These women going through this already feel immense shame. They feel stupid. They feel like they've made a huge mistake and they should deal with it and they will do everything they can to conceal what's actually going on because of that. So saying, oh, if this were me, I wouldn't put up with this or I think you should I would just leave. You just need to leave is pretty unhelpful Mm. Um, until they feel supported enough and ready to make that change. um, That's just going to fall on, you know, deaf ears really, because they're just trying to get through day to day. Mm. I would say support in other ways. Um, If they need help with childcare, offer, hey, why don't I have the kids this afternoon? Or do you need anything from the grocery store I'm going out? Like supporting in those practical ways actually helps a lot because it takes those burdens off so that they can actually concentrate on how to get out of the situation. Um, As you know, when you're super busy, I have three children. So when you're super busy running around and just, you know, you get lost in that. Um, And the other thing I would say is just if you are extremely concerned and 
you want you feel like you're at a place with this person where you can broach it um and they do disclose to you hey you know so and so yelled at me last night i was really scared he was very angry or you know so and so is controlling all our money you can say well how does that make you feel how how does that really make you feel and that doesn't sound you know very good for you how about we just you know call women's refuge and just have a chat like i'll sit with you while we do it and just see what they say you know i mean there's ways to do it where you're not taking this position of i know so much more than you and i'm better than you and i would never do this and so. i guess these conversations have to happen in person because i guess one of the levels of control and i've heard of this of partners who have access to their partner's cell phones and any text messages or, you know, so if you're texting a girlfriend saying, oh, you know, he, I'm worried or I feel, you know, scared, could that could put you in danger. So you don't want to be texting those sorts of things, do you? It's a, that's a face-to-face job. Yeah, it is face-to-face or actually like a phone conversation, not a text. Um, you wouldn't believe the amount of women who come to us with smashed phones um, or the, the first thing we often see when things get really heightened is their phones being taken off them because that abuser is always going to try to cut off people like that, people who are saying, hey, are you okay? Because mm-hmm. that's against what they're trying to achieve. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. You have to really be conscious of that and not putting the person in a position where you turn up at their house and the partner's there and you're confronting everyone. Um, De-escalation is really the way to go, not escalation. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it is um, so different. I know when I spoke to, I spoke to Gloria Masters, who works in the space of child abuse, and she has created a hand signal um, so that, you know, the palm up, thumb and and down, that they are teaching children to sort of quietly signal that they may be in a dangerous space. And I guess you can come up with a code, like if you get to a level of, or a place mm. of trust, especially if it's a sibling, you know, you know that person really well, and you can say, look, you need to work you know, I will work with you to work this out, but let's come up with a code that you can text me, like an emoji, yeah, which will be completely meaningless, like a blossom or a daffodil or whatever the thing is, that sends a signal to say, you know, you need to phone somebody or, um, hey, I need to get out for a coffee, can you meet me or whatever it is. But it sounds really sad that you have to get to that place, but, you know, these are the things that you may end up having to do. No, exactly. And, you know, having people in your life that are willing to be that for you Mm. um, is great. And I commend anyone who supports, because it's much easier to be like, oh, this is just, this is such a mess. I don't want to touch this. It's none of my business. That's the easy way, right? Um, Sitting there and listening um, consistently, even though it appears that nothing is changing or they're not making moves to leave, it's actually hugely beneficial and it is helping. Mm. So how can um, people help? So if they want to help Women's Refuge directly, what's a really good way that people can um, give you guys a hand and, you know, whether it be volunteering or financial support or and something else in kind, if, if they can't afford to do something, what? how can they support you? 
Yeah, so, I mean, obviously donating to us is brilliant and we have our Gift a Safe Night program where for $20 that goes towards providing a safe night, whether that's in a safe house or sometimes women are able to stay in their own accommodation and we upgrade their house with security features and a personal alarm that links to police. Um, so that's that's great if you're able to do that. Also, um, when we're looking after women and children, we often need things that everybody needs, you know, personal care products, nappies, um, all those things that keep a household going, food, particularly pantry items. And we have 40 refuges throughout New Zealand. So I know they really appreciate when someone rings up and says, hey, do you need a couple bags of like pantry items or um, I have some baby stuff. Would you be interested? Um, also, volunteering opportunities. Again, we have 40 refuges throughout New Zealand. And yes, we have a lot of volunteers and we're very grateful for them. And I would encourage people to just ring their closest refuge and say, hey, what what can I do to help? And that's brilliant. Mm. Oh, no, that's fantastic. Uh, Susan, this has been really fascinating and I'm pleased to hear that you've been able to have a sit down with police and get some more assurances mm. around that which is really really constructive so did you actually meet um with Commissioner Costa and work this through so our CEO had a conversation um because yeah like everyone when we first heard the announcement we were horrified you know in our minds we're thinking if women don't have the ability to trust that if things get really scary, they can ring police. It's not only the women who are going to know that it's the abuser, right? Mm -hmm. So that's going to be like, well, I guess I can really take this to level 10 because nobody's going to come and I'm not going to get in trouble, right? Well, and the last thing you want to is women thinking, oh, there's no point ringing because no one's going to come. Yeah. It's hopelessness. Yeah, so we we were not in a good place, but um, our CEO, Dr. Jury, yeah, she spoke to the police commissioner and we've been reassured that there's no intention to not respond to calls like that. Um, so time will tell. We're, we're confident. Um, we have a good relationship with the police commissioner, so we're, you know, trusting yeah. that that is the case so I, I, ho- I hope Dr. Jury gave uh, Cuddles a little bit of a nudge saying look my son you know where's the key stakeholder <laughs> in this a wee little phone call before a press re- comms release goes press release goes out would have been useful <laughs> I hope you know that message went on board <laughs> I'm Mark sure Mitchell have. Mark Mitchell <laughs> just saying yeah yeah just yeah. give the I'm sure Angel take your phone call anytime <laughs> yes Yes, she will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I mean, isn't it? And that's just it. I mean, all of this is around communication and making sure you get that communication out there. And that's what I wanted to talk to you because I just feared as soon as I read that article as well, I was thinking, gosh, you know, if I were in that, and I'm not in that hope, I'm mm-hmm. in pray that I never, ever, ever am. But gosh, if I have am someone who is and you're feeling that hopeless and when you do feel that hopeless and you feel like you, there's no way out, um, the last thing you ever want to do is feel that you can't dial 111 and get the help oh, when you need it the most. Absolutely. It's terrifying because no nobody 
just to be frank, is going to ring 111 if they're being yelled at or if, you know, there's abuse going on that they feel like they can manage themselves. Mm. Nobody wants the police to tromp through their house and have to go through that ordeal. I think most people ring when they feel this is going to go bad real quick. Like Mm. I have the potential to be seriously injured or lose my life in this. Mm. Indeed. Indeed. Hey, look, Susan, it has been great to talk to you. This has been Susan Barker, the Communications Funding and Marketing Manager for Women's Refuge. And as we said, if you want to help out Women's Refuge in any way at all, give them a call, 40 centres nationwide. So dig out your local centre and um, give them a yell. Hey, Susan, thank you. I really do appreciate your time this morning. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. You're you're most welcome. Uh, Coming up, still more great content, including Media Matters with Marty here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. You are with Marie. And joining me now, Ramesh Thakur. He's he's a Brownstone Institute Senior Scholar, a former United Nations Assistant Secretary General, Emeritus Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Australian National University. And welcome back to Reality Check Radio. I know you've spoken to our Paul, and it's great to have you here on great Counterculture. Great to be back, Marie. Thank you. More importantly, you're also the author of the book, Our Enemy, the Government, How COVID Enabled the Expansion and Abuse of State Power. So, Ramesh, how is the government our enemy? Well, let's go back to the end of the Second World War, a good place to start on many issues. But after that, during the Cold War, we had the rise of the national security state. And during the 80s, while I was living in New Zealand, a New Zealand society rebelled against elements of that to do with the the nuclear weapons madness. Then we had the rise of the administrative state. I mean, the national security state, I think most people recognize, so don't don't spend time on that. But the administrative state is interesting as well. Uh, In a sense, a good place to start on that would be to go back to the series, Yes, Minister and Yes, Prime Minister, where effectively technocrats, experts and civil servants acquired and were given and delegated more and more powers uh, of both a legislative and a judicial function. And so they began to issue directives with the force of law and to make determinations with the force of judgments. Uh, It was power without responsibility or accountability because the accountability still lay with parliament, but parliament had abdicated on its responsibility. And we saw that pretty much all over the Western world during the COVID years, where they just signed on the dotted line as told by the government, if asked, in fact, uh, and experts took over. And while initially this was the civil servants, more and more we've seen a class of experts take over the world uh, and and give edicts that must be obeyed. Otherwise, you know, think of the instant fines. The idea that the police can issue instant fines of varying amounts, some quite substantial, uh, and against which there is no appeal uh, without having to go through courts uh, is quite preposterous on its own right. So you have the administrative state. Then, courtesy of Julian Assange, who is now facing his final mm-hmm. appeal hearing, even as we speak, uh, and Edward Snowden in particular, we have the rise of the surveillance state. 
where we discover, I don't know about you, but I was horrified to discover the extent to which the state has been engaged in spying on us. And the other thing that's interesting about that is how the different states around the world actually share a common interest in expanding their surveillance powers at the expense of the citizens and marry that to various extradition agreements. Again, back to the Julian Assange case. Uh, and you have an enormous expansion of powers. And we have to remember through all this two other factors. One, there is no power that is given to a state that is voluntarily relinquished again. They take new powers, they will use it, keep it in reserve, and if any power can be abused, sooner or later it will be. Mm. It may not be in the mind of those who introduce it. They may be perfectly well-intentioned, but there will come a time mm. when ill-intentioned people will be in power, either on the administrative side or on the executive side, and they will abuse the laws. We've seen that it's an iron law of politics. And the second one, of course, is that once governments acquire powers, they are very, very reluctant to give it back. Uh, and the history of even democratic regimes is an expansion of state power, centralization of power in the office of the prime minister, delegation of the exercise of power to the administrative state, uh, as in Sir Humphrey Appleby. Uh, and that keeps going on. And now, most recently in COVID, we have the rise of the biosecurity state, where citizens, instead of being treated as the masters of the politicians and the civil servants, are treated as potential biohazards, germ-carrying, disease carriers. Uh, until you prove that you're okay, you won't be allowed into the public square, and therefore you must be vaccinated. And that digital certificate is proof, independently of the fact that the vaccines don't stop you getting infected and don't stop you transmitting your infection to others. So it becomes much more a societal control regime rather than a public health defense regime. And I think that was clear from the start, going back uh, to the Diamond Princess, the first ship which is a petri dish for actual experiments instead of models where you're just feeding the assumptions you want in order well, to get a conclusion. It was hard, hard real-world data, and it was, it was. ignored. And, and subsequently reinforced by the American warship, the Roosevelt, and the French warship, the Charles de Gaulle, which at two ends of the spectrum showed the vulnerability of elderly people in the worst possible living conditions before they realized there is a, a disease outbreak. Despite that, the fatality rates, whether you're looking at infection or case fatality rates, were actually quite low and not at all comparable to the Spanish flu, much closer to the Asian flu and the Hong Kong flu of the late 50s and 60s. And of course, with the Roosevelt and the Charles de Gaulle, it was clear that for the healthy, fit young males in, uh, or young people in general, uh, it was nothing to be worried about. It, it was no worse than an average flu, not even a bad flu. Uh, and the fatality rates were very, very low. So a lot of it was known from the start. A lot of it we were told about by very well-credentialed epidemiologists and other health authorities. 
infectious disease specialists. But the powers that be had their own narrative that they ran with. And I think looking back, you know, I'm instinctively averse to conspiracy theories uh, and, and addicted to cock-up theories. But I must say it becomes increasingly difficult with each passing years to avoid the suspicion that there's something going on that they're not aware of and it wasn't just incompetence, that there was some element of malfeasance by someone and we need to find out. But the end result was that instead of being the guardians and protectors of their citizens' freedoms and liberties and civil rights, one over hundreds of years of struggles, a lot of it against the executive, governments in fact signed on to institutions, systems of control, where they monitored what the people were doing, forced them to take tests, uh, put them under house arrest. You know, the, the, a cop abuses you on the street for no reason. You can take the police to the courts. Mm. Suddenly, they said, we are ordering mass house arrests, even though you may be healthy and you have committed no crime. And we said, great, give us more. Yeah, well, here uh, in New Zealand, and that was really—I don't know which was more shocking. I like yeah. you. I think yeah. of the extent to which people complied happily with it and wanted tougher and more and longer and earlier surprised me more than the fact that government were delighted. New Zealand, we were exceptionally compliant here, but of course, you live in now in Australia, and yeah. I mean, for for me, that poor woman, the pregnant woman who was dragged out, Zoe Buller. After, yes, about um, after placing a Facebook post to me that. I just could not believe oh. in the vision on that. And also the juxtaposition too of how only literally months, I don't know whether that that vision was before or after the vision of George Floyd and the lack of outrage for what happened to her from in, in most quarters versus the outrage that happened with um, the vision on what happened to George Floyd. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, how can people put these two things side by side and not just see they're both outrageous? And, and run with that uh, analogy because it's a very good one. We had, you know, you're not wearing a mask even when driving by yourself in a car and the cops will, will pull you over and find you instantly or arrest you uh, or shove you down to the pavement as happened in some cases. Uh, and the social distancing requirements, uh, when all the hundreds of years of evidence and knowledge showed that even as a family of five or six, three generations of families living together, you're actually better protected health-wise a whole lot of you if you go outside onto the beach or into the park and sunshine than if you're forced to stay at home. But they force you to stay at home. And then suddenly you have, following the George Floyd incident, the BLM movements all over the world. Mm. And no, that's not a health threat. That's okay. You can go in the thousands on the streets. And the police are told just stand by and watch them. Uh, and some, of course, joined in taking the knees. So, yes, we had those. And, and, and then the number of health authority, authorities who are experts who wrote a letter saying that it is perfectly okay because, in fact, racism is a bigger threat to your health. I mean, that just destroyed their credibility completely. So the, all that happened. And the other thing they did, of course, was the collusion, the coordinated collusion between big state big pharma, big tech, big media, to create a censorship industrial complex where dissidents and critics and contrarian voices, no matter how well-credentialed, 
no matter how responsibly communicated, were silenced, ostracized, thrown out of the public square, many of them uh, put under him tremendous social pressure. Uh, and it was pretty amazing. And that's where uh, the rise of institutions like the Brownstone Institute or the Daily Skeptic in the UK or their equivalents uh, that are not as well known in certainly in the English-speaking world, there might be in other uh, countries as well, I think was very important because it made it possible for people to realize they were not, in fact, alone. There were many others, well-regarded people, who shared their concerns and were trying to voice them. There were some brave people in these who kept on making their points. Uh, and, and some of these people, not just very well credentials, they are exceptionally nice, amiable, affable people, uh, like Martin Kuldorf, ex-Harvard, mm. like Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, like Sunitra Gupta, who has visited uh, our part of the world, uh, so has Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, and, and, and yet they were demonized and vilified and subjected to uh, most vile abuse. So all that created an atmosphere that in some respects resemble the preconditions for the rise of totalitarian regimes. And I'm sorry to say it, but one of the worst symptoms of that was Jacinda Ardern's statement, there will only be a single source of truth, and that's the Ministry of Health. Mm. Uh, and then you realize that the Director General of Health during those years is now co-chair of the WHO Working Group on amendments uh, to the international health regulations. Mm -hmm. So the experts have really taken over, and the WHO, of course, is demanding uh, more powers, more resources, uh, and the right to reimpose this whenever it wants. The final thing, it's a long introductory statement, but the final thing worth remembering, we've only had, what, four or five real pandemics over the past 120 odd years, starting with the Spanish flu the Asian flu, the Hong Kong flu, the avian flu, the swine flu, and then COVID. So it's actually a very rare event. Now I haven't done it, but if you look at the if you look at the total number of deaths worldwide between 1st January 2020 and 31st December 2023, the four years. I'd be surprised if COVID makes it even into the top 10 mm. in terms of the big killer diseases. It might, certainly won't make it into the top three or five. And yet all our health services were turned into COVID-only services. And we are now starting to pay the long-term price of that. Uh, that so in the UK, the melanoma uh, cancer deaths will hit around 12,000 and Europe becomes over 100,000. That's just one form of cancer, not even the biggest killer. And that's in the UK. I hate to think what the figures would be for a country like Australia, given the strength mm -hmm. of the sun here. So I think all of that, and to adapt something that Benjamin Franklin said, uh, those who privilege security over liberty end up with neither. I think we are seeing the same in this figure now. Those who sacrificed essential liberty in order to prolong the lives. And remember those who are at or higher than life, average life expectancy, were the only ones genuinely at risk. 
to prolong their lives by a few months, we now end up costing the lives of people at all ages over the long term, particularly in terms of the standard metric that was used until COVID, the quality metric, the quality adjusted life years, where the life of a healthy 20-year-old is much more valuable in life years than the life of an elderly 80-year-old, especially with comorbidities. Uh, and we have, as I said, ended up with sacrificing both liberty and health outcomes. Uh, and I think it might be difficult to do this while the generation that imposes these regulations is still in power. But I certainly hope the successor generation will look back and draw the very strong and harsh lessons from the madness and insanity from a public policy point of view that infected the whole world. Mm. So in the Western Hemisphere, we've got a lot of inquiries going on. New Zealand's is just beginning. They've had uh, either state or federal inquiries, I know, through Australia, the United Kingdom. The Australia is a complete farce. Yeah, so uh, the then... Kingdoms is a farce as well. So, yes. uh, so then that's that's my question. I mean, they yeah, are... That's the present generation. Yeah. The and, and... who did this are, are, are reviewing themselves, so you don't expect anything else. And especially when there is a benchmark in the Western Hemisphere, you know, the one outlier being Sweden, mm-hmm. who were heavily criticised early on, yep. but fortunately their, um, and his name eludes me now, the, the, and uh, yes, and he stuck to his guns. And they had, they stuck to proven health policy mm-hmm. and they now have these, these outcomes. I can't understand why these inquiries aren't using them as the benchmark to measure their own commissions of inquiry. Go back to, yes, Prime Minister. You <laughs> have an inquiry whose results you know in advance mm. that favours you. And and all the questions in the, at least in the England part of the UK inquiry, it was very clear that the predetermined attitude is we should have had lockdowns sooner had it last longer, and this should have been harder. Uh, and and, and the way they treated their witnesses was just absolutely disgraceful. Mm. So I, 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 they might yet shock us pleasantly, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, I've given up on that one. The Australian no. one is, is, is a total farce. So Yeah, so what, yeah, you can't let that stand in the way of good tyranny. Yeah. Uh, the interesting one is, one, the citizen inquiry into Canada, which is good, but completely ignored by the mainstream media, but also the official grand jury inquiry uh, in in Florida. Uh, And that's coming up already with some very interesting results. So that might be the way forward. And I think we should not overlook Florida and Texas and South Dakota in particular uh, in the United States. Remember, whatever else you might think of the United States, and the bottom line is, that really is the last bastion of the defender of, of freedoms and civil liberties and individual human rights, mm. as opposed to collectivist tendencies. Uh, and the fact that they have a strong, robust federal system, unlike ours, which collapsed, and the prime minister disgracefully backed out of challenging uh, the closure of state borders. I don't think any other federal system did this quite like this either. So Australia was uh, ground zero in many ways, and Melbourne in particular for all sorts of insanities. And no coincidence, Victoria, Melbourne, had the worst outcomes. 
Mm. And it also is very distressing, I think, for many people to see a number of the perpetrators of that, of course, shuffled sideways into privileged positions elsewhere mm-hmm. and with zero consequence for and the carnage. They've, been, they've been, keep receiving New Year's honours and Queen's Birthday honours and knighthoods and various things. And the most massive transfer of wealth from the poor and the working classes to the already rich and the laptop classes and, and, and the Zoom classes uh, and, and the rise of uh, COVID billionaires, uh, including in China, but not just in China. Uh, I'd like to know what Bill Gates' net assets were at the end of 2019 and what they are today. Mm. I think philanthropy is very profitable these days. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about as time goes on, that you can't help feeling that there is something, there's a niggle, that there is something more nefarious going on. Mm-hmm. Now, in an interview well, seven or eight months ago, you were asked around the WEF and, and you were more along the lines of sort of a, a collective group thing. And I have to yeah. admit, I certainly, when you look at the likes of Trudeau, uh, Macron, uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, Anthony Albanese, but it was Scott Morrison, I think, at that time. There is certainly an element of we we want to look good to our mates, yeah, our five eye friends and and the like. So I can certainly appreciate that. But in in terms of something bigger, where do you think that something bigger sits? I'll, I'll answer that very clearly. I would like an independent, robust, and I don't know how you empower it inquiry into the networks and connections between the Gates Foundation, Gavi, the Global Alliance Against Vaccines and, not against vaccines, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, and CEPI, the, whatever it stands for, the Committee for Emergency Preparedness Against Infectious Disease. I think you will find a lot of same names cropping up. And then the WHO. You don't need the WEF. I think that's a distraction and, and the real Experts network is are these. That's where the technocrats are, uh, and then you can bring in some other sectors as well. But let's just stick to the health issues at the moment. You'll find a remarkably small coterie of people who know each other, consult each other, support each other, nudge their respective governments. Wouldn't this person be a good person to have as your health secretary or as your coordinator for COVID or whatever? Uh, and you begin to see very quickly the same names appearing again and again and again. That's where I would begin with. Mm. Because as I said, I, I think I think we have seen the rise of the careerist politicians with no experience in any sector of life outside of politics. They go into student politics in university days. They join a party, become a staffer wait for the next suitable vacancy, put their hands up, get selected uh, and get into parliament and end up being ministers. Uh, and it's astonishing that they have no life beyond that. Our prime minister is a very good example in Australia. of He's nothing but a pure politician. Mm. I, mean, I, I, I thought Scotty Mo- Scott Morrison was certainly the worst prime minister in, in my conscious time that I've been living in Australia. But at least he did have some experience outside before. You can't even say that of Anthony Albanese. So do you reckon Elbow's worse than Morrison? Or no, 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 I Morrison? didn't say that. No. <laughs> I think Morrison was worse. You think Morrison I think Morrison did have some experience outside. Albanese doesn't. 
Now, you know, give Albanese some time. He might prove, prove himself worse than Morrison yet. Uh, but that will be hard. I, I, I think whatever else you might say about Albanese, I think he does have some convictions. Morrison was the one politician that I know of who seemed to have absolutely zero convictions, entirely transactional, and, and, and no sense of responsibility for things he said and no awareness, self-awareness. He was just incredibly uh, bad as any sort of a leader. He, he should never have been promoted beyond a branch manager for a store. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know how he got to where he is. But the point is, in a sense, he's a metaphor for an indictment for the entire system of politics that we have now have, where there are no genuine leaders, transactional people, who don't even look to the next election. They look to the next news cycle, next focus poll results, and are guided by that instead of taking positions uh, there. The one difference in this potentially is the leader of the opposition uh, in Canada. And surprise, surprise, because he's a conviction politician, he's what, something like 15 points ahead in the polls. Even the young people in Canada uh, support him more than they support Justin Trudeau, uh, both in terms of personalities and in terms of party affiliations. That's quite an astonishing result. And I think the women are starting to gravitate to him as well. So I think there is a place for leaders who spell out their vision and show the character, strength of character, to fight for that vision, to try and implement it, to take on the administrative state. I mean, look at how the administrative, the, the, the deep state destroyed the first Trump presidency. Mm. Whatever you might think of him, there's many people who are elected in power that, that I don't like, but if they are duly elected, we have to respect if you are at all a believer in democracy and democratic government, you have to respect the will of the voters. They didn't. They set about sabotaging him from day one, and they succeeded, by and large. Uh, if he is re-elected, I think he will have learned from that experience, and they will go after the deep state, which, of course, frightens them even more. Uh, but where else do we have this phenomenon? Mm. So I think we need to look at that. And as I said, internationally, the elite-to-elite -elite collusion, now you, and I would say collusion rather than cooperation, uh, is the one that we need to look at for this. Mm. So what sort of vanities then do governments need to relinquish in order to get back to good governance? Do they need to do what we're considering here and, and actually start stripping out um, the dead wood within that administrative state? or Yes, and cutting, and cutting back on the relentless expansion of the state uh, budget uh, compared to GDP. It just keeps growing. Uh, you, you want to increase your money here, identify where you will cut a corresponding amount somewhere else. But we don't do that. And the result is by now, I mean, this is, again, has shown up a major flaw in the democratic system. By now, the number of net beneficiaries exceeds the number of net contributors uh, to the public finances. And because they vote, it becomes more difficult to reverse any of that because you will pay a political price. Instead, you promise to expand state assistance to even more sectors. Uh, and again, we, we've seen that with 
childcare subsidy in Australia uh, to families earning up to what is it, $250,000 a year or something. These are not needy people. This is the poor working class subsidizing the lifestyle choices of the upper classes, uh, mm -hmm. which is exactly the phenomenon we saw uh, in COVID. People who, how long do we think lockdowns would have lasted in any country? If garbage workers were told you will, you're not allowed to work because of the threat of infection. Yeah, yeah. So on that topic, in terms of things changing, have you got any thoughts on Javier Millet in Argentina, who has taken to the, his state apparatus pretty much with a chainsaw? <laughs> well, we, I, I hope he succeeds. Mm. Uh, I, I think we do need to pay back the tentacles of the state and return decision-making to individuals uh, and get rid of the nanny state. I mean, I, I saw some some local council in the UK is going to ban and take away swings from children's playgrounds because they're a health and safety hazard. You know, we, we brought up increasingly risk-averse generations uh, of children. Uh, on the one hand, risk-averse. On the other, they look to the state to solve all their problems. Mm. And increasingly, this attitude, if you disagree with me, you are evil uh, and, and you should be shut up, made to shut up. Uh, we see that uh, syndrome arising as well, where the censorship demands keep rising. Uh, and there's lots of people who want to emulate what happened during COVID as a way of tackling the climate change crisis as I see it. They don't believe in, the, in respecting the outcomes of the democratic process. They don't believe in fighting to change within the system. Uh, and they take to disruptive activism. Mm -hmm. So very few governments in the Western world seem to have the clarity of thinking and the courage of convictions to reject forcefully the heckler's veto. Mm. So then... On that score, so they are not doing that. They have they're being overrun by ideologues and activists, and they're largely very very ideological extremists, not just activists. Mm, they're very, I think, distracted by a number of causes. So then, does that open the door? Do you think that they're going to be caught napping because already there has been strength, and arguably, are they? Is the West? still the dominant cultural power or have they actually has the east now seen a rising in terms of what's happened in china i mean india has has been particularly stable and quietly growing and not a lot of attention's been paid there there's elections i think in indonesia and malaysia going on this year is there going to be actually a, a balance a shift in power between the western hemisphere across to those in the east well that is inevitable that that's part of historical shifts but what i have not seen and I'm not aware of any time history is any country or culture or civilization, whatever you want to call it, that has been complicit in its own self-destruction from within, quite like this. You know, you get all these hyperbolic statements about India and its great success story. Well, the proportion of people of Indian origin in New Zealand 
has grown from around 40,000 when I left the country in 1995, I think it was, to a quarter million today. How many people of Indian origin do you know in New Zealand who are planning to go back to India permanently? Mm, none. Same in Australia, same in the United Kingdom, same in the United States. We might criticize, a lot of us, neither I don't, but a lot of people do, immigrants do criticize uh, their host country, but they don't want to go back. And they think it's racist if you say, well, if you're that unhappy, why don't you go back? On the contrary, in the States especially, and in other countries where it's possible, a lot of them are planning on how we can bring the rest of our family over, including uh, parents that we can look after. So if we are all so bad, irredeemably racist, why is it that millions still want to come to our country and take enormous risks often in the boat crossings and, and, and pay enormous monies uh, to people traffickers in order to make it here? And yet we want to just self-flagellate, tear down everything that is important in our history and culture and destroy what has made us into successful societies. I mean, I, I am in the very fortunate position that I have nationality of New Zealand, of Australia and Canada, all acquired at the time when I thought I'd be leaving there permanently, but they're very good countries to be nationals of. And I really don't know any three other countries that would be better. The others might be very similar. Certainly the Scandinavian countries, I, I think, are very well regarded and with good reason too. So why do we think we are amongst the worst in the world? Australia, all three, are remarkable exemplars of successful multicultural societies. And that element of tolerance and diversity and inclusivity is now being abused. And we are busy uh, adding fuel to the bonfire that is consuming us. Mm. It, it's, if you look at the people in the UK, even in the government and in the cabinet, it's interesting that it's some of the immigrant people were the strongest defenders of the British way of life because they recognize why they or their parents and ancestors made the trek across to the UK and left conflicts and problems and poverty behind. But why are we intent on destroying it? Why, why don't we recognize that? I, I, I just don't understand that. Similarly, it's a democratic system and the rule of law that has given us a prosperous, stable society. It's the existing political system that has ensured that. Why do we want to destroy it? How much of that is due to agitation by foreign hands, I suspect a minor element. There just seems to be mm. a lack of moral compass, a sense of desolation and a moral vacuum at the heart of Western societies, uh, which I don't understand, I'm very puzzled by, because we have created the most educated, the most prosperous, the healthiest populations ever in history. And it's the systems, the process that have delivered good outcomes. Why do we want to abandon that? The Sorry. one final point on that, by the way, if you look at the vote on the 
voice referendum in Australia, the 60-40 split. It's approximately that split across the Western world in terms of the elites versus the people on a lot of issues. And you see the rise of the protest movements by the farmers in the Netherlands, in France, and elsewhere. Many other countries, the people are rebelling against the elites. In the UK, majority of people feel both major parties have abandoned them, don't care about them. They serve their own interests and the interests of international elites. And that disjuncture between the elites and the people, I think is a very dangerous and a very combustible element. Uh, and and we, if we don't, if we continue to ignore that, you see in Ireland most recently, as well, of course, where, where uh, mm. the, the government uh, and the opposition parties are in Northern Ireland as well, uh, are denouncing their own people for, for these views. If that attitude persists, then I think we are creating the conditions for new uh, revolutions, not all of which uh, might remain peaceful. Mm. I mean, you mentioned before in terms of that technocratic state mm. and in the, in, in the reference of governance, but as an academic, what are your thoughts around the ideological capture within academia and the, the young minds that it is now turning out as pushing through some of these ideas? And a lot of them come from elite backgrounds Mm -hmm. And perpetrating this, I mean, do you are you concerned with the future of academia in the Western? Absolutely, and you had the perfect metaphor for this with the three university presidents appearing before the U.S. Congress, and these are presidents of Harvard, Pennsylvania, and MIT, three of the top brands in the whole world of higher education, and their presidents, and they could not answer a simple, straightforward, clear moral question and they ducked and waved and bobbed two of them are gone by now the third is still in power but they are symbolic of this transformation where if you think about it the key to that is in fact university education not high school it's the university education that trains your future generations of teachers from the primary school through to the university sector that trains the civil servants. You, you can't get any decent uh, entry-level position in the civil service without a basic degree. That trains the journalists. That trains the, as I said, student politics is the most common uh, training ground for future politicians. And what began as various studies departments in universities two, three decades ago, but now has spread across even into the hard sciences. And so you have moves that indigenous people's spiritual beliefs are to have the same status as the empirical sciences from the European tradition, which is a load of punk, but it's taken uh, hold quite a lot. And if you question that, then you're obviously a racist. Merit is to be thrown out in favor of identity politics. Intersectionality is important, and you have a victim, hierarchy of victimhood and grievance. And we're just feeding this constantly. You're a victim. You, you have a grievance. If you don't recognize that you have a grievance, it just shows how successfully you have been brainwashed, etc. And so a whole generation of activists rises up believing that the state owes them everything, that anything, only thing that matters 
is structures of power and the oppressed and the oppressors. Uh, and that plays out across the board. So I think you need to begin, you need to have the courage to begin. Uh, there are some voices, in fact, in the US now saying that it's too late to reform the university sector. We need to start afresh. Mm. Well, the University of Austin is probably a really good example of that in conservative colleges like Hillsdale's. But, I mean, you know, I I think, is there a lost generation? Have we lost a generation to these ideological zealots? It looks like that, doesn't it? I'm glad that I had retired and out of it all. I I really don't think I could have survived in the present environment. I certainly wouldn't encourage anyone I know uh, to join the university. Because you were at University of Otago here in New Zealand, correct? I was for 15, yes. So, years. Then, so the recent appointment of its new vice chancellor. Thoughts? I well, I know him from my days when he, he was a student when I was there. I know him from those days. So um, that that no comment on individual persons. Mm-hmm. But Let's I, just hope he doesn't uh, apply his economic expertise with the university the same way he did with the country. Well, that's maybe. one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is maybe this will be more congenial to the expertise he does have. Mm. Oh, very <laughs> diplomatic of you, Ranesh. Very diplomatic. Uh, looking sort of further afield in terms of the world as a whole, I mean, a good chunk of the population, nearly half, are voting this year, and of course, obviously, the big one in November in the United States. Well, we have two important ones. One is the United States, the most powerful and the most consequential democracy. The other is India, the most populous democracy in the world. Between the two of them, you mm-hmm. are going to affect the destiny of the world. Well, let's start India's with this. is in April, May. Yeah, so let's start with India. I mean, because Modi has been there for a long time. And he will be there for another five, ten years. You reckon? He, he'll, he's yes, he's old dog? opposition is hopeless. Mm. The, the, the only national opposition party is the Congress party. The Congress party has two problems. One is it still hasn't got over its sense of entitlement of being the ruling class and the ruling party in government. It still believes as if it should rightfully be in power that it was in for the first few decades after independence. And the second problem is it's a family dynasty. And the problem there is with the Gandhi Nehru family still in charge, it has no future. Without them in charge, it has no present. And they can't square that dilemma. Uh, So I think the question for Modi is how much of a majority he will have. Last time around, he increased his majority. Remember when Modi came into power in 2014? It's the first time in 30 years that a single party had a majority number of seats in parliament. That increased subsequent time, uh, election, five years later in 2019. And this time, uh, we shall see. But he, he remains overwhelmingly popular. He's easily the most popular leader of any genuinely democratic country in the world. Uh, and he's trying to reshape the country. Now, contrary to some other things I was saying earlier, again, you may like him or dislike him, but the reason he gets a lot of votes is he does seem to have some convictions. This is a country in which, anticipating what has happened in Western countries now, the Congress Party succeeded in a country that is 80% Hindu majority. The Congress Party succeeded in making Hindus feel ashamed of being Hindus in their own country. 
I said at the time, this is dangerous. There will come a time when there will be a huge backlash and the primary victims of that backlash will be the Muslims. You go into appeasement of rising intolerance in the way of demands of minorities, sooner or later that will come back to bite you. Uh, and we've seen that happen uh, in Western countries. It happened in India. And they still haven't recovered from that. So the vision that Modi has articulated is we are not going to, at least in the rhetoric, not going to discriminate against other minorities. And I think some of the international realities pull them into line, as well as some of the domestic realities. Because you're looking at 150 million, in fact, closer to 200 million Muslims. So you can't, you, mm. you, can't, you have no future as India, as a united country, if you're going to go after Muslims. Let me put it as bluntly as that. Yeah. But that is different from appeasing demands of the intolerant extremists in the religion. And I think gradually that is starting to shift. So there's that element. Uh, and then the, the, the emphasis on competence, on good governance, on eliminating middlemen where corruption resides. So a lot of the digitization, which has uh, social control fears in the West, in India has been hugely beneficial in giving money directly to the intended recipients. And so the housewives have their own bank account. And the government guarantees the credit rating if need be, so that they can receive the payment directly instead of having it received through others. And, and these have been, I think, very popular. And he has focused on things that matter to the common people, mm. like gas connections, toilets, safety of women arising from the lack of toilet facilities in schools. Girls hit puberty and they stop going to school because they don't have the option of girls' toilets in school. And it's, it, it's an, in, you know, a sense all on their dignity to go mm -hmm. through that menstrual cycle at schools, etc. Uh, they can't, all these things Modi has done in a way that no one tackled before. Uh, and, and I think in the Western press, you see too much of the negative stories. They're true, but it's not the whole truth. The, you, if you read only the English language press in the West, you will never understand why Modi was re-elected with an increased majority and why he will be re-elected again this year. So I think there are both the elements, that there are fears and there are good reasons for those fears. But in the end, you, again, you put your faith in the institutions and the practicalities of managing a country it's a cliche that all countries like to use, but I don't think it's as true of any other country as it is of India by far, mm. element of diversity. That huge, diverse country cannot be managed if you abandon or substantially qualify and compromise any one of the three great institutions that explain its political success since independence. That's democracy, federalism, and secularism. Each of the three can be abused, and that has its own dangers. Different ones were abused at different times by different parties. The biggest threat at the moment from Modi is to the federal character and to the secular character. But you still have genuine state elections. You have genuine regional parties that are opponents of the BJP. 
It doesn't control the whole country with an iron grid. A lot of the key subjects are under state jurisdictions. So I think we should not ignore the reality of undercurrents that are both positive and negative. And I mean, personally, I would like Modi to be back in because I don't see that anyone else would bring these positive attributes, but I'd like him to be back in with a substantially reduced majority so that they also get a wake-up call. But that's, I'm not a voter in India, so that, that's, that's just a preference from outside. Mm. Yeah, well, because, of course, one of India's greatest exports has always been its people. So, you know, there's uh, it's, it will be really interesting. And there is that, I think as a Westerner, you forget how there is that decentralised element, how much in each of those provinces are really essentially little countries um, Mm -hmm. of their own, aren't they? And the the loss to the country, if you look at the extent of successful Indians in the business sector, in the innovative sectors, uh, in the professional classes in the US, uh, I don't know if you're aware that Indian Americans are the highest earning income group in the United States of any ethnic group by household income. Well, Silicon Valley would grind to a halt without Americans. Yeah. So so the United States, I mean, you know, deja vu. Well, (laughs) it's an indictment of democracy as a system if you're going to be reduced to a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And given the two, do you choose the morally compromised or the mentally incompetent? I mean, you've got a situation now where, you know, they're madly trying to bankrupt one. um, And you look at Joe, I mean, they surely, surely Joe Biden is not going to make it to the election. I mean, do you, I just. Yeah, but then what what, what does that mean for the democratic system? You wait until the democratic convention? after the Republican convention. So Trump is locked in. They put up a half-decent candidate against him by throwing out their primary process, the results of it. They win the election. But how badly... They already have a problem. Substantial chunks of Americans have lost faith in the existing system. They have lost faith in the integrity of the ballot. And majority of Democrats never conceded legitimacy to the Trump presidency. Majority of Republicans don't concede legitimacy to the Biden presidency. Mm. That can't be good for anyone. No. And and yes, so I think it's too late for them to have an open primary now. So if they replace Biden now, it, it destroys the whole basis of the American system of presidential election. Yeah, but I mean, the, I think the Democrats have gotten to a point now where they like to write their own rules. They they really don't seem to be concerned. Yeah, but that will not be a, even the Democratic voters' choice then, will it? No, no. What about um, Robert Kennedy Jr. as I an independent? I, I think the mainstream media has targeted and vilified him quite unfairly. I think if you want to understand Bobby Kennedy Jr., you need to read his own writings, and they're voluminous and incredibly extensively referenced. Again, I don't know 
how he does it all, or even listen to his speeches and listen to his interviews, including hostile interviews. He's prepared to go on and answer questions from hostile interviews. It's the others who won't have him on because they said, no, we don't want to give him publicity. Uh, so he ends up doing interviews with Tucker Carlson or with Josh Rogan. Uh, but he's a very thoughtful, very well read, uh, and used to be the darling of the left in his battles against uh, corporate treasury behavior uh, in destroying the environment. And let's not forget, he was extremely successful as a trial lawyer. But he's an anti-vaxxer. How can you take him seriously? Yeah. I, I, the one thing I wonder is how much of a disconcerted vote or a disgruntled Democrat vote he will actually take, especially if Biden is put up as the candidate. A lot will depend upon whether they go ahead with presidential debates and include him. On the basis of all past president, they should include him because he's polling well above the 10% threshold. And if they have live debates, proper debates, between Trump and Biden and Kennedy, I think there would be a, an even chance that he could actually succeed in breaking through. Mm. with the choice between those three, many people would say, well, if I'm going to take a risk, I'd rather take the risk with Kennedy. Yeah. Now, this, this is as things stand. Of course, it's always possible that any one of them might implode mm. at the time. Uh, and also, let us not forget, given the, his family history, he has been refused security coverage by the Biden administration, which in itself needs to be much more of a news than it is in the States. Mm. So then if Biden uh, has this one senior moment too many and they decide at the DNC conference that, okay, we, uh, we're not going to do this, we know that Kamala Harris is probably the most deeply unlikable candidate uh, that the Democrats could even ever ever dream up. So, who on earth would they would they bring in? I mean, will they bring in I um, Gavin Newsom? Ooh. I, I mean, that is already well advanced in preparation. Uh, I, I I don't think they're going to wait for another senior moment. Uh, I, I think that decision is most likely has already been made. It's a question of how do we manage it? When is the most opportune moment? both in terms of who we want, but also in terms of it's too late for the other side to do anything about it. And that's where they have the advantage that their convention follows the Republicans. Once the Republicans are already locked in, and we'll, mm. I think, know by this weekend, if, if Nikki Haley really does badly even in her home state, I just don't see her surviving after that. And yes. this is open primary, if I remember right, is in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. If she doesn't do well there, uh, the only reason she might not now is that enough Democrats might think that, actually, do we really want to give momentum to the candidate who's likely to beat Biden? So we'll see. No, it will be incredibly, incredibly interesting. And, it, and the outcome, I think, is something that many in the Western Hemisphere will be holding their breaths over, so we'll have to wait and see. It was well, I, would, I would have liked Ron DeSantis to be the candidate. I, I think he was... On his record, his uh, Trump achievements without the Trump problems. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, he's still young, though. I mean, he's in his early forties. I think he's got time. It will, but, yeah. but you know, each 
successive five-year or four-year, in the case of the U.S., administration of these types, the country is further down the drain. Mm. And I mean, let's, and with the Democrats as well. I mean, we all saw what happened with Jacinda Ardern, you know, being propelled into the leadership six weeks out from the election, and and what that sort of thrust mm. happened here. It just nudged them enough uh, mm. to be able to form that coalition in twenty seventeen. So, you know, but really, the, what gave her enduring credibility, I think, was the Christchurch mosque massacre. Mm. And whatever else, I might think of her and her COVID performance. On that one, I think Jacinda was absolutely pitch perfect in her response. She held the country together. She was firm. She was, she reached out, and it, it, I, it think, I think it made her uh, tenure that particular incident, and rightly, uh, and, and it gave her a lot of goodwill that never drained away. Mm. Uh, and it gave her. I mean, I was arguing. I, I told you how one of the things I don't like about the Modi government is its, its approach to the Muslims. I, I wrote an article, I think, for the Times of India at the time, saying, isn't it strange that a country that has hardly any Muslims, a small little country in the South Pacific, should offer lessons to a country with 180 million Muslims on how to deal with your Muslim population? So, because, mm-hmm. you know, just on that point, by the way, I know that a lot of people criticize Jacinda Ardern for wearing the hijab when she meets people. It is still the case that 10 years as prime minister, Modi is yet to set foot inside a mosque. I find that absolutely appalling for a prime minister of a country with now 200 million Muslims. Mm. Well, there's a, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's about um, taking the good parts and the good lessons yes. and actually sp- expanding on those, but also ex- accepting the flaws in, in terms of all things COVID, I think, yeah, you're and right. welcoming constructive criticism. Mm. I think every lead, you know, the, the old Latin um, Roman tradition, memento mori, remember you two are mortal. The guy who whispers into the triumphant Caesar's ear as the chariot goes through the cheering crowds. Uh, I think every good leader needs to give space to contrarian and, if necessary, critical voices around the table on condition that you don't go public with it. But if you mention it around the table, I will listen to you, I will listen to what you have to say, and then decide and not penalize you in any way. So I think if you don't have such leaders around the table, you need to go out actively and look for them because they are very, very crucial correctives to the courtier and sycophant cabinet colleagues that you have around the table. The danger for Indian prime ministers always has been the sycophants, not the critics. And, you know, Modi has a lot of good cabinet ministers that he has chosen personally. Some of them I know from my professional background. Uh, And they are dedicated people with great competence and ability and integrity. And that's good. But more closely to heart, I look at uh, Kofi Annan, under whom I served in the UN system, and I look at others. Kofi had the self-confidence and the capacity to have really, really good people around him who are independent-minded, who are quite happy to give him their advice freely within the confines of confidential discussion, not go bleating about in private. And he welcomed that. And, and, and a lot of those people 
would have happily gone back to work with him again if if if, if it was possible for a, a secretary general to get a third term. Mm. Uh, and I've been out, so I don't know if if that is true of the two successors in office with the Ban Ki Moon and Antonio Guterres. But I'd be surprised if it was the same element. The other person, Secretary General, who had that capacity and who surrounded himself with really good, top-notch people, was Dag Hamshold. So I think you need that. Uh, you you look at in Australia, uh, you look at the Hawke Keating cabinets, really good people. The, the person I worked with most in that was, uh, of course, Gareth Evans. They would not just do what they were told, and then they would tell the Prime Minister where to get off if, if, if there was too much interference in their portfolio. And they were guided by a vision of what they thought was good. You can agree or disagree with that. But they are not primarily motivated by self-advancement or self-preservation. And you need that. I, I think that's a very important element that every leader ought to have. Now, it was said of Jim Bolger in my time that he may not have been the most gifted person around the cabinet table, but he was the best manager of cabinet discussions and cabinet performance. And that is an important factor. So I think the same, I think, was true of Bob Hawke. He may not have been the best of the lot around the table, but he was the best of all of them in holding that group together where they could express their individual points of view uh, and come to a collective decision. So I think to go back to an earlier question, we need to rediscover the art of collegial cabinet decision-making followed by collective cabinet responsibility so you don't start criticizing it. And if it disagrees fundamentally, you need to resign and step outside. And you need to have a system of uh, civil service recruitment and advice that is genuinely independent and impartial and has the larger interests of the country at heart and is not motivated by self-advancement. I think we've seen too much of that. We need to go back to good process. Good process delivers good policy development and good policy development and implementation at the end of the day is also in every country that I'm aware of, good politics. Mm. Well, you've given us some good solutions there. We might have to clip this, Ramesh, and send this off to our crew down in Wellington. Yeah, the last part, last part you can send it to... Uh, should we send that down to um, Grant, the new vice, the, the new vice chancellor? Okay, yes. I'll do that. I'll do that. Hey, <laughs> and look, my greetings. This has been a lovely walk in the park. Thank you for us for this this morning. This has been Ramesh Thakur. Um, the book, actually, if they want to get hold of it, our enemy, the government, how COVID enabled the expansion and abuse of state power. Where are people best poised to get that, Ramesh? Uh, from Amazon.com. Well, there you go. That's, That's the only place. In fact, you can Excellent. get it on Kindle. You can get it in paperback. And I am sure that you are going to be doing some writing on Brownstone in regards to the outcome of the Indian election. I'll be very interested to read that in the coming months. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, this has Thank been you, You're best. most welcome, Ramesh Thakur, here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear. My mate Marty is up here next here on Counterculture. Did you enjoy that powerful interview with Ramesh? There's so much to think about and digest. And if you've heard this and you thought about how the state impacted you during the pandemic, why don't you make a submission as these have now opened for the COVID inquiry? This is your opportunity to have your say. Take some time, make some notes. How did the government's COVID response impact you? 
Were you or a loved one trapped by our closed borders? Did your business suffer because of the lockdowns? Were you prevented from comforting family or being with a loved one in their final hours due to an odious rural mandate? Did the mandates make you lose your job, business, marriage, family or something more? Now is the time to gather your thoughts and prepare a submission. There's a great website that can assist you in this process. covidinquiry.co.nz That's covidinquiry.co.nz Check it out and start getting prepared now. I can't stress enough how important it is that we have our say. That website again, covidinquiry, C-O-V-I-D-I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y dot co dot N-Z. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Cheek Radio with Marie. And of course, as it is this time each week, it's time to catch up with Marty for Media Matters. Marty Gibson, good morning. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I am very good. I've had a very eventful uh, week since we last spoke, and I want to start actually with a, a thank you and share the experiences of our week. And my husband, uh, Mr. Marie, had a wee medical event last Thursday. It spooked me greatly, and it was a medical event that was to the point it warranted a an ambulance to be called and a trip to ED. I firstly want to huge thank you to the team from St. John who arrived in a very timely manner and triaged beautifully and then got us very promptly to ED and the team at Hawke's Bay Memorial Hospital ED who were just wonderful. Now, before everybody worries, Mr. Marie is just tickety-boo. It was a very, very unexpected event, let's put it this way, but I am pleased to say he's back to 100% and everything is great. One of the things that I just wanted to share with people, and I think when you have been in the trenches, particularly in on the nat, the non-COVID vaccine trench for a really long time, which Mr. Marie and I are, that when you go in and medical histories and stuff are taken, you, I mean, you instantly want to bristle. I have to say a huge ups to both uh, the ED doctor and the medical registrar, and his vaccination status was asked in both cases, just as part of routine. So it wasn't a pointed out thing. It was just part of routine questioning. And in both cases, it was like, okay, and they moved on. It wasn't laboured. It wasn't, uh, there was no uh, judgment being passed, not visibly, at least to us. It was just, okay, box ticks moved on and they carried on. And, uh, And I just thought, this is as it should be. Actually, to me, I saw this as a as a really positive thing. So a huge thank you to all of them and the team there because they, they really did look after him and he's now back to Box of Fluffy Ducks and, and uh, back to his usual self. But yeah, it was certainly something that I wasn't expecting and he certainly wasn't expecting, but there you go. Every now and then you need to use the system and it's nice to know that when you need it, the system does actually still work. So Yeah. Oh, it's great that all's well that ends well, eh? It is all well that ends well, but you know I, I, we can't say that for everybody. There's been a lot of tragedy this last week. I mean, Afeso Collins last yeah. week, and then and a couple of school principals passing well be- before their time. It's a bit like when you start sliding down a hill on a uh, on a toboggan, isn't it? You get that feeling of building acceleration, and mm. um, you get that hollow feeling in you in the pit of your stomach that this is is going to be a year that brings if we plot the acceleration in these kind of stories it's going to bring a, a lot of sorrow for a lot of families and it's terribly sad people i know who've who've died of runaway cancer in the last month 
my age or younger. Mm. And how I felt on Thursday, dying a thousand deaths until we got the diagnosis. Because, of course, you know, your mind runs away with you. And how how I felt just in that short period of time. Mm. And then how these families must feel, the carnage. You know, because for, for every single person lost... It's a family left grieving, and there's a lot of grief out there at the moment. And it, yeah, and I just kept having this, you know, the saying roll through my mind again and again and again and again. And, you know, there are none so blind that those that will not see. And I just hope finally that potentially with um, some of the data coming out and the submissions for the COVID inquiry and the importance of. If you have a story to share, if you have something around the COVID response that you feel that you must share, do so because they need that data in order to form a picture because at the moment there are none so blind that those that will not see and and this inquiry is there to hopefully collate all that information into one place. Did you see there is a top doctor, um, Dr. Boz, I think she's called, uh, She's uh, she's been very, very pro- uh, the COVID response. She's got six hundred thousand plus yeah. uh, followers, and she took the recent paper that McCullough was a co-editor on in regards to the vaccine, the testing, all the forms yeah. that were in there. And she was literally waking up in real time in Incredible. that video. It's like uh, Fred Hoyle, the great uh, cosmologist, coined the phrase "the Big Bang" to mock that theory. And then some data came back and he realised that it pointed to it being correct in, in some ways and formally renounced his adherence to his original idea that had just always been there. And that's that's the science that we've mm-hmm. got to trust, that ability to realise that the evidence doesn't point to the hypothesis being correct and without any ego being able to just walk away from it and say, all right, let's uh, start again. That's the science I trust, not trusting the theory no matter what. And, you know, just thinking as you were saying that, I guess a lot of these people are really hanging on to, and like the Michael Baker saying, we, we saved 7,000 lives, <laughs> whatever you're saying. A lot of those people are probably thinking, man, if maybe, you know, if they know that they've got it wrong, but they can't walk away from it, maybe they're thinking, gosh, what would I do to people who had done this? And I think we've got to, to avoid that fishtail I talk about sometimes. Mm, we've got to be a bit gentle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lo- another person, Lawrence Vanderpost, said uh, he wrote a book because he spent a lot of time in, um, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And he observed that people who were actually in the camps were a lot l- less vengeful toward the Japanese than the people who came into it and saw what they'd done. And he thought that was because the people who were there realized that they were in the thrall of some kind of, well, mass formation psychosis, uh, I guess, although he didn't use that word. And so we've got, you know, we've got to allow for that as well. Mm, Most definitely. As the week has gone on, I've seen a number of things where that phrase just keeps coming again. I mean, here's a random one, and this is something that you've probably not pegged because you don't follow the rugby, uh, but there was quite a hoo-ha. My parents were telling me about it. My dad was rather annoyed because he watched some super rugby on the weekend and there were some players. Um, there's these new mouthguards. I didn't know they were a thing, but there's these new mouthguards that have been mandated by World Rugby for senior players and apparently they've got sensors in them that can detect 
collisions for yeah for head injuries right so they've now been mandated and some players were playing trucking along I think Anton Leonard Brown was one of them and anyway he'd been sent off because the sensor and mouth guard said that he needed to go off for an assessment he had to go off have the assessment and then he got put back on again and he was just like why are you sending me off I haven't had a knock anywho I was listening to Rob Nicholl who is the uh, New Zealand Rugby Players Association spokesperson and he was talking about these mouth guards and the entire process and what was going on his frustration was, and, and he used words to this effect, on how players are losing trust in the technology because the technology hadn't been tested effectively enough. And whilst what they were hoping to prevent with the technology was good and noble, because they hadn't tested it enough and it wasn't working effectively in reality, once they were trying it on the field, that players were actually losing trust. And they, as an association, have been trying to say to World Rugby, there are issues here, you need to stop it, we need to test it more in real-world conditions or actually look at the data before we mandate this across all of rugby. (laughs) And I was sitting there listening to this thinking, oh, the irony. There are none so blind that those who who will not see. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing when you're unaffected. And by interesting, I mean terrifying. Mm. <laughs> because it's the sort of thing you read about and you think, well, how does that work? And then you can see it, in, as you say, real time and think, oh, that's how it works. That's and this could be very dangerous as it's always been very dangerous every single time it's happened. Yeah. And then you have sort of, as you said, that mass formation blindness. Then you have willful blindness. And then you just have good old-fashioned gaslighting. It's always the cover-up. And Jan Tanetti, bless her wee cotton socks, Jan Tanetti is an absolute master of this art form. In a discussion with Hosking around the halting of education projects, which has created quite the stir this week. And as it turns out, as it turns out, whilst she says that they were costed fully, no, they were costed to certain stages. And then many of these projects weren't costed beyond certain stages. They were essentially going to be borrowing money in order to pay for them. He's such a paper tiger, though, isn't he, Hosking? He'll sort of, well, you know, put on his... Grandpa Simpson as a younger man act and and then, you know, someone will give some slippery political bullshit and he'll say, oh, well, you've explained that quite well or just move on. Well, Tanetti, though, I mean, bless a little heart when he was trying to press her on the fact that, yeah, but Jan, you're going to pay with with these improvements with borrowed money. Can't print it or you're going to borrow it. Her response was, we're not up to our ears in debt, and I'm very proud of the of our fiscal record. A little bit of that here and there in the paper, wasn't there? Just, just, just a tart. Where do you want to start with some of that? Because I know you pulled start? out, you pulled out a lot, and um, and we concurred on 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 a lot. There was definitely a lot of that in terms of measurement, responsibility, or lack thereof. I thought the best thing I read in the papers over the weekend anyway was uh, Stephen Joyce. His assessment of the child poverty issue was spot on and contained a lot of things that we've actually been saying over the past 10 months or however long we've been sitting here. He basically cautioned against announcing things and the media taking announcing things as the same as doing them, and much the same as the media always take what uh, computer models are going to say about climate change as it's going to happen and write headlines about it. It's a, it's a pretty consistent problem for them. 
he said, and we now know the recipe for solving child poverty was clearly wrong. Leaving more families dependent on benefits is a case of misplaced kindness, which is not a path to reducing child poverty. High inflation and out-of-control government spending always hurts those on the bottom rungs of society the most. You and I both went through a lot of highlighter on this, didn't we? We both um, went a tremendous amount of highlighter on There's this. no getting away from the fact that there is a large group of families who are so marginalised from society as we know it that they are unable to lift themselves sufficiently to becoming functioning participants in the society, that society. And when I read that, I thought about the Mungra Mob's uh, presence on TV screens recently, and particularly that olient little doughboy, Rawari Waititi, basically was on saying, this is your third warning, in a very menacing way, you know? If they threaten tino rangatiratanga of Māori, there will be uh, severe consequences. And that's the whole thing where a lot of these flabby, skinny-armed little Māori leaders with their pot tummies really do think of gangs as their shock troops. And that's disgusting. The fact that they can't separate being a criminal scumbag, not that all gang, gang members are criminal scum, scumbags, but the prevalence rate's a fair bit higher, that they're just a hogtied to being Māori is a big part of the problem. And also to the fact that he believes that being in a gang is actually part of their tenoranga teratanga. I mean, I can see the tribal element behaviorally, here, behaviorally, behaviorally. Yeah, there's a thread there that goes back into Maori culture. Yeah. Of might is right, of bullying, of violence. That sort of thing that they won't face because like anyone who's doing the work, you know, anyone who's doing the work to improve themselves, when you start casting aside the bits of yourself that aren't aren't worthy, there's a moment where you get a bit of vertigo and think, by God, by the time I finish this, is there going to be anything left of me? Mm. But you've got to push through it. Look, it just reminds me very much of a story that I know firsthand through someone here. And there is a grandmother raising a grandchild. She took the, the child from her daughter, who was in a relationship with a senior gang leader here in the Bay. This child had both neurodevelopmental and physical disabilities, so required a lot of help and intervention medically and was not getting that with mum because mum just wasn't interested. So she took this this boy as a, as a toddler out of that home into her home and with her and her mother, so the boy's, the baby's great-grandmother, they set about working on um, making sure that he got the help that he needed. And they did this for a number of years and the hospital, so they got, got, got them to hospital appointments and surgery required and all sorts of bits and pieces. So they were looking after their own, doing a really admirable job. After a, a year or two, the social worker, which they interacted with at the hospital, had cottoned on that it was Nana raising this little tacker, essentially said, look, you have been the primary caregiver for this child for a really long time you should be receiving benefit support as the guardian of this child. So went round to organise support for Nana and said, look, we're going to give you a little bit extra financial support because you're entitled to it. You've been raising this child. We'll do that. Well, what a can of worms that opened. By doing that and that support being given to Nana, it actually meant that it cut off the support the mother had been receiving the entire time for that child. Yep. Even though she wasn't looking at it. 
Nick Minute, the gang member boyfriend plus uh, extras, as well as the daughter, come round in the front lawn screaming match to, to her mother, demanding to get the child back because, and I quote, how dare you steal my urn? Yeah. Well, that's what we're up against, yeah. I've got a, a great friend who um, was the head of Age Concern down in Gisborne. The stories she would tell me about this kind of thing, the sort of elder abuse that comes with addiction and gang membership, it's uh, heartbreaking. And it exists under the surface. Most people have got no idea. And it makes the characterization of looking at the way the benefits are being allocated by attention-seeking politicians on the left, even more disgusting. Mm. I mean, you know, we can keep going through Stephen Joyce's column about some of the things that he saw in his time uh, working in that space where he was talking about Northland had stubbornly high unemployment and so MPI's Ben Dalton was dispatched to see what they could do. And anyway, they rang all the big employment employers in the area to ask what it would take for them to take on more staff. And their answers floored him. They would all take on more people tomorrow if they could find them. And in a region with high recorded unemployment, what followed was a journey of discovery. Finding a group of disengaged young people, matching them with employers prepared to take them on, putting them through an intensive job and life skills training program and micromanaging their lives for six months via a patient but firm wrangler, ex-netballer called Joe. And this is what I talked about last week on, on the political panel. You've got to get rid of that socialist conceit that all people are the same. There are some people on long-term benefits who are very capable, very bright, and are in the position on the cycle of contemplation where they're ready to change. You've got to hook them out first because they're the low-hanging fruit. There are some people it's going, to, it's going to be harder. But with that idea, well, everyone's equal in equity and equity, it, it goes against that, doesn't it? Mm, it does. And it also ties back in as well with the column last week with Paula Bennett when she was talking about the Encarro, um, the truancy officer, who was literally yeah. going around getting these kids out of bed and getting them to school. It's exactly the same thing. It's it's having somebody there with the motivation and the support to be able to do those things. And and it's looking at, and I love the fact that Joyce did that, you know, it's actually the problem is not what you think the problem might be. We've had multiple jobs go in the industrial unit. It's part of the business that I'm involved with. And mm -hmm. we get a lot of these younger ones come in, fill out job applications. So they come in and they'll fill out an application and the person accepting it will sign a thing to say that they've been looking for work. But uh, one of the problems, of course, is because we work in the industrial space and we've got machinery and stuff as part of our WorkSafe commitments, we, we do do um, and we have done random drug testing. Mm. A lot of them, that just instantly, the minute they see that, they just, oh, no. And that's where you've got work safe on one hand and trying to keep think people safe and, and something that is an absolute deterrent on another. And all they say is, oh, I'll fail that, so I'll fail that, so I won't bother. Mm. I mean, yeah, get, getting drug treatment to people is, is a major part of this, and I've said before, you know, it'd be great to have uh, drug treatment camps uh, in the hills uh, above Gisborne where you may be getting forestry slash turned into charcoal or something like that mm. and multitask a little bit. He was also talking about being surprised when a, a health provider wanted to show them an app that reminded their customers of all the commitments they had for meetings because what was happening was 
uh, meetings were often missed, chains broken, and people went to the back of the queue. And I've said that before, you know, you don't need to have a theory where the health system's racist. You just have to kind of look at why so many Maori fail to turn up for appointments. Mm. And, And, you know, you don't need to bring a cultural or race thing in there. Mm. Um, it's it's practical. Oh, totally practical. Totally. And and when you're sort of dealing with a whole bunch of different services too, it's not just one. You know, I mean, like if you've got if there are health issues going on, you've got all those our health appointments. And then if you're in the Ministry of Social Development, well, then you've got all of those appointments. And that's even before you get to Kaying Aurora, an appointment yeah. here if you're caught up with housing or inland revenue. I mean, there yeah, was we were so talking many- about five, uh, six government cars up one driveway. And he he's also saying the coordination of getting several centralised agencies to work together on individual families is huge. And often government agencies are not trusted by families anyway. Mm. Often talk about clutch plates and clutch pads. You know, you need someone to engage and you need someone to have contact. The two different things. Mm. One um, of the things he su- suggests here, and it's actually extending that, was at the end, the right person in the right place can make a lot of positive difference. And if we're prepared to empower them to do so, and this will take some time family by family, that suggests a family-centred social investment approach where we can stop worrying about the, what the program is called, stop declaring it must be run by a central government agency and instead back the individuals and organisations who can prove they're getting results. And that's already happening in some community in Marae areas. It's already happening in Pacifica areas. We know that there are people that are already doing this. They've, they've mm. done it off their own back to help their own people. And it's making sure that they are continue to be supported to do that in the first instance, but also to the fact that it just shows you that it's actually even just the basic life skills. Some of these people are just struggling with the challenge challenges of those basic skills because they may have never, ever had oh, them. If you talk, I mean, I, I've remember one time talking with a uh, now deceased uh, mob leader. He was talking about going and seeing one of his kids in a, in a home, you know, like a, a youth facility. He was saying he saw this roster on the wall with kids' names and jobs, and he said, "Yeah, what's that?" <laughs> and, um, they said, "Oh, well, uh, you know, we um, give them jobs, and and if they've done it, we tick them off." Oh, and I said, "Yeah, hey, we should get one of those. We just yell at them." <laughs> you know? and, and but he'd had a few realizations. One of which was, you know, when he found out that his uh, mob brothers who were coming to visit him were molesting his kids, that had quite an impact on him. And he said, you know, it's real aroha, not that bullshit aroha. And I think that's uh, what Māori leaders have got to be brave enough to characterise the bonds that gangs have as bullshit aroha. Mm. And I've talked to another uh, very ferocious, huge, tough, another mob leader. He was, you know, reflecting on when his house burned down. It was his family who he was sort of marginalised from who turned up and gave him a hand and he never saw his, his uh, fellow mobsters that he realised, oh, bullshit mm. aroha. Yeah. And in terms of the gangs, because, of course, they've been in the media this week with the uh, the law in terms of banning gang patches in public spaces. And you and I have talked about this before because, I mean, I'm probably – I don't I don't agree with it. I just don't agree with it. I think it's to me, that is the sort of thing 
that is milking mice, you know, because yeah, a national might, party, su- su- you know, supporter, an older, you know, it's a, it is a, it is a virtue, sig- yeah, it's a virtue yeah. signaling um, move on nationals' part. I really now again, not to say that you and I are supportive of gangs, but to me, it's that whole barn door. And I mean, look, if it's then what defines a gang? What defines a gang? I mean, mm. are you then going to say because it only takes one person or one activist or one ally within that political space that then all of a sudden redefines a gang outside of black power and jungle yeah. mob and camoncheros and and whatever else headhunters and whoever Voices for else freedom. Is. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, do we then say, oh no, you can't wear a kefir? anymore now because that's actually representative yeah. of support for Hamas or you can't wear a Star of David because you're actually a Zionist and you're so, you know what I mean like where do you draw that line and well, I think you know, there's plenty they can do before they get around to that I got a, uh, a an outrage text from a very dear friend of mine who was a, a very prominent policeman and local body politician down in Gisborne who was incensed when he read this article about a couple of tourists one of them got their bike stolen by the mob down in Wairau and the cops were too scared to go and confront them and get it back his text read those cops should be charged for cowardice they don't deserve to be in the job gutless pricks and uh why didn't police do a search warrant, seize and recover the stolen bike and interview the occupants of the property? I think everyone knows the reason why. So, you know, he said he's seeing a lot of this and hearing a lot of it through the grapevine. A mate who was married to a judge told me a cell phone t- was taken from a victim in, at gunpoint, traces it online to an address, contacts police. The police say they cannot do anything. Is search not verified or some other bullshit. Victim then traces it uh, to a repair shop and recovers it, an aggravated robbery, and they will not act. Mitchell needs to be questioned about that. And so police, Kyle, was being interviewed about this and whether cops were going to go and seize jackets. If they can't go and arrest someone for stealing a motorbike, they're not going to get into a scrap and take someone's patch. They don't have the stones. I had a job when I first got here, uh, contracted to the council, fixing things in uh, parks. And one of my uh, jobs during that time was to go up and knock on the door of a a mob pad and say, I say, chaps, um, do you mind getting your your cars out of that park so I can put the bollard back that you've taken out? (laughs) And, you know, I was thinking as I was walking up the drive and keeping a wary eye on the pit bulls, man, my hourly rate for doing this is, uh, is quite low. See, I would have put the bollards back in and trapped the cars on the other side, but that's just me. Well, yeah, I uh, I wasn't. I was I was told to ask them to get it out, so I I did it. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. No, but they did it. You know, all yeah. great. I didn't get punched or anything. The other thing that Cahill said in that interview as well was just looking. And I mean, this is where I agree with him. I actually think getting police. I mean, it's one thing putting something in place; it's another thing enforcing it. Right? I think having police going around, running around and trying either giving out fines or taking vests of gang members is a gross waste of their time. I'd much rather that they be working to actually look how on earth they could afford the $65,000 Harley. Or on the weekend, I saw a very smart-looking Bentley drive past, and then I was like, oh, that's a smart-looking car. And then I look inside and see the patch gang member with their partner and their children looking very excited in the back, thinking, hmm, 
Okay, so either they've won Lotto, because to be fair, we have just had a Hawke's Bay millionaire, so they could have, or they've got the Proceeds of Crimes Act. I, yeah. Why don't they put their energies there and actually strip those assets away? Why aren't they, you know, there's so many other things that they could be doing. Well, I mean, well, As I said, they should be cracking down on prospecting. Yes. Prospecting should be illegal. You know, to, to pull kids into a, into into gang life and get you know, if a child's committing crimes and it can be traced back to a gang affiliation, that should come with severe consequences. And yeah, that would be the trigger to go right through the assets that are held by those members and audit the origins. And, and if there's not a satisfactory explanation, they should be uh, seized. Uh, also, they should. Um, uh, have very severe consequences, as I've said before, for anyone who intimidates someone for leaving a gang. And that would probably be the smartest thing Luxon could do, would be to say, hey, look, we're going to declare an amnesty on people wanting to leave gangs. If you want to leave a gang, we're happy to, you know, we've got these uh, camps where you can get rid of Slash, have a bit of time in the bush, have some drug treatment, uh, maybe have a bit of psychological care. We'll start going back through that. But Leave it behind. And anyone who intimidates you, we're going to throw the book at. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I just think back to all these, as I said, all these conversations I've had with gang members over the years. I remember talking to another guy who was talking about how, you know, they'd get the young prospects to bring their girlfriends around, slip them a bit of pee, and then they're all having a go at her. You know, so we all got outraged about roast busters preying on these upper middle class girls. Roastbusters happens every single week in every gang pad, in mm. so many of them all over the country. The amount of misery those guys cause and and perpetuate that they've experienced themselves. You've got to keep that compassionate angle. And that way I think you'd have more buy-in from Māori because much as they don't like being disloyal to other Māori because they feel they're up against it, I think they would be pretty happy to be uncoupled from that kind of dysfunction. And if you really hold it in their face, hey, you know, the elders are getting abused, the young people are getting corrupted, the young people are getting raped. Yeah. You know, it, it's not hard to walk away from it, including exactly. for gang members. Exactly to that point. I'd much rather see money spent that if you've got a young gang member who's walked away and they're trying. So for they and I've seen it with um, people in businesses that I've worked with that who've been employed, starting a family will often do it because they don't want their life for their children. But so many of them now have these tattoos on the cheek tattoos and their neck tattoos. So if you're going to strip that patch away off their back, it doesn't matter. They're wearing that patch on their skin. Okay, mm. I'd much rather see that money spent if you've got somebody who is making an effort to walk away from that gang, as you said, not be intimidated and actually have tattoo removal so then that person can re-enter society, get themselves some work and actually make something happen. Well, maybe, you know, just like, because it's quite hard to remove them, maybe just tattoo a big love heart on their face so you can say, hey, that guy's really turned around, you know? Yes. Oh, just an idea. Just an idea. It is going to be one of those things that's certainly going to be a watch the space um, over the next little bit. One of the things that was rather interesting, I thought, was the fact that, you know, Luxon is very focused on his 100-day plan, which is wonderful, and he's really doing that. Vernon Small, however... So one of the things that you and I have looked at is in terms of how things are moving, and, and it's not looking great for, for the Labour Party. And one of the things that Vernon brought up in his article was how he was like, poor Labour, 
poor Labour, it's a bit mean that everyone's been mean to them because all of these things are being rolled back by National that really didn't get a chance to get started because they happened so late in the second half of the um, 2020 term. And the reason for that was the handbrake applied by Winston Peters in Term 1, 27 to 2020. But it's interesting, um, Christopher Luxon doesn't seem to be suffering from the same uh, handbrake issues. Not yet. <laughs> potentially. But, uh, where is Vernon Small? He's on the back of Tracy Watkins. Don't you love it? We are, we're old school. We still do it with actual newspaper people. It's um, it's tragic, really. So he is. So, so he is, yeah, yeah, which it took me ages to find him too, and it's because he's on the arse end of tracing. I mean, you know, Vernon Small always strikes me as being like Wayne Brown's less successful, embittered socialist brother. You know, there's a, a visual for you. Yeah, just like you have to. I mean, there's that whole if you if you're not a Tory when you're old, you don't have a brain kind of uh, uh, problem. But he. he he looks like he might have uh, had a few moments of clarity, realizing that uh, the new woke Labour isn't the same as even Michael Cullen, Helen Clark's Labour. That it took quite a nasty turn, and maybe he's even starting to realize that all the borrowed the money that Robbo borrowed has uh, actually made a whole lot of rich people richer, and hasn't really sort of done what it was meant to do. He sort of yeah said thirty six more children. We're living in poverty as of June 2023 when reducing child poverty was one of the party's key targets and a mantra for former leader Jacinda Ardern. Actually, we revisited that theory this morning that mm. I think uh, the Ardern government was a nationally scaled case of Munchausen by proxy. It was a pathology about it. And if you read the s- symptoms of it, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a mental health disorder in which a caregiver, most often a mother, routinely makes up fake symptoms or causes real symptoms in a child or adult victim to make it appear that the victim has a true physical or mental health issue. These actions are typically a result of maladaptive disorder or ex- excessive attention seeking by the caregiver. It's uh, quite canny. I mean, you know, as we've discussed before about 12% of the population has some sort of cluster B personality disorder. Mm. And people with narcissistic personality disorder are drawn to things like politics and media. And interesting, med- interestingly, medicine and martial arts. Uh, the fact that we don't have a, a conscious way of weeding these people out of such positions before they gain a dangerous amount of power over us, um, I think it's inevitably meant that they actually have it. They have a dangerous amount of power. I mean, thirty-six thousand is a lot of children, and you know, I mean, she was the she was the minister for children. She couldn't even say poverty. No, well, no, no, no. no. What did she call it? Relative poverty. It is certainly a card that has been has cropped up with a number of the the columns this week. And yeah, Vernon, he, he's str- I think he's feeling a little bit nostalgic. I mean, you may not have heard uh, Ramesh fully just before, but he, I mean, we talked primarily around the COVID response, but he has written a book called Our Enemy, the Government. You know, and talking about how the COVID response. Um, Must read it. Yeah, has sort of weaponized it, but it's not just the COVID response. The COVID response was the pinnacle of what they've been doing. It's the pinnacle of that Munchausen's. Now, Mm. I'm not saying that they have created the pandemic. No, they did not. But they, what they did do, what they did do, and our dear friend We Squealer did, 
is that he, like so many other leaders, um, printed $20 billion and injected it. COVID was the possum crossing the road. The COVID response was Squealer driving off a cliff and into a river of debt to avoid it and still running it over. Yeah. It was quite funny when Vernon Small started saying, the exit of former finance minister Grant Robertson underscores just how much talent and expertise experience the party has lost over the past year or so. I snorted my tea, especially when I started reading the list. The list is well known enough, as well as Robertson and Ardern, Calvin Davies, Nanaya Mahuta, Andrew Little, Michael Wood and Tapu Allen have all jumped ship. Megan Woods is, is being equivocal about her long-term plans. There's not really a sort of a big brains trust kind of vibe when you read those names, is there? Just sort of trophy kind of probably would have been with National if um, they had more real-world talent. So I I asked uh, Ramesh around uh, Grant Robinson's appointment to Otago University, and of course you brought it up with um, Paul, Peter Williams brought it up on Friday, yeah. because I ha- hadn't quite realised what a repository for former Labour MPs Otago University appears to be. So I mean, you know, what was it? Claire Curran was on the board, I think David Parker is there, Squealer, I've got to stop calling him Squealer, Robbo is now Vice-Chancellor, but also to Materia Ture, she has been a law lecturer there for for many years. So she's a former uh, Green MP who, you know, just happened she to be benefit- a shoplifting benefit fraud one Fraud, yeah. Well, I'm so to that end, and we've actually got a list of people that, so Robbo's gone there. Chippy, our Chippy, bless his little heart. He's trying to put a brave face on things, but things are going to get lonely. I mean, his little buddy's gone. His Numbers in the polls are tanking. He's got, you know, I mean, let's face it, you've, you've got Ginny Anderson embarrassing herself and having to retract and apologise. He doesn't have his forklift licence. No, and Jan Tanetta, you know, she's gaslighting up the wazoo. So, I mean, if I were Wee Chipster, I would be updating the CV. Just saying. So, and the, and he's not alone. I mean, Nanaya's looking for a job. I mean, Andrew Little is uh, potentially around the of Golras. I mean, she's, you know. The Productivity Commission. Yeah, and Nana from the Productivity Commission. So I thought I would have a look and see, well, can we find them a job? And I thought, well, it makes sense now because it's, you know, if. It's so kind. You know, I know, I know. And this is my short-term kindness. It's turning into medium-term kindness. And I thought I'd jump on to the Human Resources page at Otago University. Interestingly enough, on the website, they still have the University of Otago and the old logo. So they've not updated that yet. Anywho, awesome. 44 job openings. So I thought we could have a little, you know, per- peruse and see if we could find some jobs for, for everybody. I mean, there are some that are that, that I think would work quite well, others not so much. So there's ones a lecturer, a senior law lecturer and associate professor in public law. Have any of them actually got any proper qualifications? Yeah, no. Okay, no, well, they're not going to be that. Oh, no, dentistry, that's no good. Oh, here we go. Teacher Researcher College of Education. Well, maybe you could get rid of um. That could be one for Jan. We could get Jan a job. Oh, program leader in Tairafiti. What are they doing in Tairafiti? What are they Health doing? Sciences. In Health sciences. Health hmm. sciences. There we go. Recruitment coordinator. There you go. We could um. He could. We could make Andrew Little a recruitment coordinator. That would be quite interesting. Or specialist financial systems and projects, perhaps. I did see this one. A Pacific liaison officer for Auckland. Actually, if Carmel Cipollone is getting a bit fed up. There you go. Yeah. She could have that. That's a good one for her. Producer uh, brand content. I mean, that would be um, that w- that could be uh, Jacinda herself. Mind you, she's be. she's been employed by Harvard. 
True. She'll probably. They'd, they'd, I think that might pay better. Yeah. yeah. Then nurse, a specialist in marketing. Okay. I used yeah. to do this. Uh, have this bit of a imaginary uh, a horror movie. Sometimes when I used to have to watch Hipkins and Robertson uh, on TV all the time, imagining what sort of survival situation you'd have to be in where you'd choose those two as your leaders. There'd probably be, you know, especially if you were being pursued or something, they'd be squealing and moaning because they'd have blisters and you'd pretty quickly think about eating them. You'd think, oh, well, you know, chippy will taste like sausage rolls. and Well, I mean, Robbo's going to taste like a cheese roll fairly shortly. You, I'm sure it's being done there. Uh, the fact that they are leaders is symptomatic of the that thing I've talked about before where we talk about the environmental impact of, of fossil fuels, but what we don't talk about enough, and I'd argue is a far greater problem, is the uh, degradation of the human character from having cheap energy. It's meant that we're awash with cash and energy is cheap, which is, you know, as you say, you need that kind of situation for the woke virus to take place. And it's meant it doesn't really matter who leads us because it's not a survival situation. So we've ended up with these terribly weak leaders who are in turn easily corrupted by things like the World Economic Forum. Mm. It can be stroked along by their ego and a kind of amoral in their own ways. Wow. It's pretty gloomy, yeah. It is pretty but, gloomy. Hey, I think I've got I think I've got I've, I've got a couple administrator into university catering. That could keep them in sausage rolls for a bit. Or well, it's, it's just so funny imagining them doing a real job, isn't it? I mean I can't really I oh, know, I've got the perfect one. This is the perfect one for, for Chippy. Plumber, because he's certainly given a lot of people the shits lately, and, and then he can go around. You are talking about Munchausen's. There you go. He constipated and, a whole bunch of people. Now he can go around and fix it. I, I, don't, I don't know. I think it's generous of you to think that uh, it would work. Mind you, I think it's generous to think that Robbo is going to improve the um, academics at Otago. He's, he's going to be primarily focused on showing them where there's some slushy money and leaning on people at the educate, Ministry of Education who owe him a favour. While we're talking about that, I mean, we could talk also about the Productivity Commission being closed down. I thought there was some interesting stuff in that. Absolutely. And again, you know, as, as you pointed out, this is another facet of, their none so, of, of the old none so blind as they that will not see. And I think this is Ganesh saying this, while the commission is all but gone, the job it was set up to do is not. New Zealand has one of the worst productivity records in the Western world. We work hard, but it takes longer to do things. And I'll just quickly link that back to the big article about Russell Coots, where he said, Coots loves New Zealand on the sale GP circuit. The country's rich sailing history, extraordinary talents, and natural environment make it an obvious destination. But he's exasperated at the hoops he must go through to host a leg of the series here. The most complicated country in the world by far, he says. I'm saying on a scale, it's 10 times more complicated than anywhere else in the world. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. it's uh, And again, that's there's just been too much cheap money. It stopped us weeding out bad decisions and bad leaders. No, it just doesn't surprise me at all. But, um, yeah, old Ganesh got a, a bit of a hammering. Old Eric Crampton thought that the best inquiries took place prior, prior to 2020 before Robbo appointed Ganesh. Uh, under Nana, 
there was a sharp change in direction, Crampton says. Areas of inquiry shifted from productivity to include matters like persistent disadvantage that might be more normally considered by the Ministry of Social Development. The incoming government then had a choice. It could try and to rebuild the commission to do the work that a productivity commission should do, or it could end it. You know, Nana did not accept Crampton's view. This reflects a fundamental difference of perspectives. He said, the notion that social outcomes are not connected to or a result of economic performance, policy, or activities is at variance with a considerable body of evidence. Yeah, you could say that, but I think uh, Stephen Joyce is on the right track when he is talking about regionalizing this stuff. Because the, the the more regionally you go, the less there is that three-year cycle way of thinking because you're looking at someone who lives down the road from you. you you've you got a vested interest in them continuing to improve. So, yeah, it, it sort of seems that there are a few little fingers of dawning understanding coming yeah. into the paper. Well, what's really interesting with that, uh, productivity Commission story. So what happened is the Productivity Commission has been closed down. Now, it was originally created by ACT mm. as a way to actually improve New Zealand's Oh, Rodney Hyde had his... Uh... He had, yes, he was, he, he was sort of part of that. So the, when you have the switch when Ganesh Nana was uh, employed... And both, you know, when I see the comments of both him and Spoonley who are saying, no, you know, this isn't ideological. This is, you know, you need to actually bring in all of these things because the data tells us that. Well, one of the things that we do know is it's very, very easy to cherry pick the data that you wish to follow in order to set a direction, which is obviously what they've gone and done. And, you know, that's fine. But the new coalition obviously have looked at that and in their view to actually cutting back costs have decided, no, we're going to take that money. What was it, $9 billion or something mm. per year that they were being funded? And they're using that money now to set up the new Ministry of Regulation to, to cut through that red tape, ironically, headed by ACT leader David Seymour. So, you know, the, things come and go. And productivity, I mean, I remember in the 90s when, and well, you, I know you fled for a bit, but when all our counterparts were sort of fleeing off to the UK um, post-university to do OEs and all that kind of stuff, it was Kiwis were highly sought after because one of the things they loved about New Zealanders was their great work ethic and they rolled their sleeves up and got stuck in and they were natural problem solvers and all of those sorts of things. Can we say that of the 20-somethings of today? Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, as I've said before, you know, those Kiwis who were heading off on those OEs and were uh, sought after were about our age and they'd had their asses kicked by our grandparents who'd survived the Depression in World War II. You know, I'd been given jobs by my grandfather, not paid, straightening out nails because he grew up in the uh, Depression, packing them in on a horse into the mm. Waiweka Gorge. So, you know, it was worth straightening them. As I said, when we can just waste things and throw them away because the energy is cheap and money is cheap, it, it does leach away that enterprise and that that um, that drive to think about ways you can cut waste and do things efficiently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, um, the last thing I want to touch on is a story from yesterday and stuff. Fringe radio station that chats with ministers and conspiracy theorists alike was the headline. Yeah. Glenn McConnell. Yeah. And I'm thinking, whoever could he be talking about? 
Well, anyway, well, yes, a reality check radio made the news with stuff. This is the subheading. Coalition MPs have made regular appearances on fringe radio station backed by Voices for Freedom. Is this a good thing? Glenn McConnell looks at the debate. Right. I'm going to flick down to this. this I read this out to Mr. Marie. He had a bit of a spit the tea moment like you did with that other article, asked if he thought his ministers were being used to legitimise the content on Reality Check Radio. Luxon said he wanted them to be available to as many media outlets as possible. You do not want to see groupthink emerge. It's actually very important that interviews happen, he said. Now, let's just park the whopping great thing, ironic groupthink to happen. Yes, Christopher, there's been a lot of groupthink in the last three years. I just thought, yes, that's right. I mean, we we want to talk to everybody and, and we appreciate all government ministers and what were then candidates to come on and, and talk to us. And and I have to admit, there are a lot of invitations that have gone out. We had earlier on Erica Stanford uh, spoke to Peter Williams. Obviously, Winston's been on several times. David Seymour, you know, he had a pretty contentious interview right back at the beginning with Paul, but then he had another more fruitful interview with Rodney on a different topic, and they covered a whole heap of ground. Now, the reality of it is, and this is what we're about at Reality Check Radio, is reality, is that we interview a whole heap of people. It's up to the listeners to decide how much they engage, whether or not they take on board whatever the interviewee is saying, or they may even completely switch off and go, actually, you know what, that's not our jam, moving right along. Or as you said before we got started, or you listen to it if you don't agree with it and think, mm, how do I prepare a counter-argument to that? Oh. This isn't rocket science here, but my favourite quote, my favourite quote, under the sub-headline, have MPs legitimised the station's messages? Seymour and Mitchell said it wasn't for them to comment on other guests featured on RCR. Seymour said it was important for him to debate issues with a variety of audience audiences. He pointed to a previous Stuff article which noted how Seymour had successfully challenged an RCR host around his prejudice towards drag queens. I always intended to raise the standard of debate and I am happy to challenge interviewers, he said. I talk to a wide variety of media outlets, even niche ones like stuff. Having a range of voices in the media can only be a good thing. Actually, here, here, David Seymour. It's interesting that they, I mean, the, the example that they gave about Martin Selner, and I haven't listened to that. You've, you'd listened to it and you said it, you didn't really sort of, you found him a little bit, uh, I, I started a little bit on the nose. Yeah, I started listening to it. Look, to be brutally honest with you, it was, I probably did about 10 or 15 minutes. There were just themes and topics there that didn't sort of necessarily sit with me. However, that's the beautiful thing, isn't it? Like I was like, okay, yeah, no, I'm not actually engaged in this. So I can do what anybody does and disengage and listen to something something else. So that's that's the absolute beautiful thing. Yeah, it was interesting. The criticism of Martin Selner was in, Ger in Europe, he leads a white nationalist movement. He said he was not racist, but was leading a patriotic activist youth movement. Now, that's to party Māori. <laughs> What's the difference? You know, yeah. it, it's, it said he effectively wanted to deport immigrant communities and to pass law to make life hard for migrants. How often do you see on Facebook debates... Uh, Māori saying, if you don't like it, you can go back. <laughs> go back and live in Europe is a, is a little bit of a, a double standard. There. You know what I, um, just uh, I guess before we close, another thing I looked at was 
war-weary Ukraine looks to expand draft. That's a euphemistic um, headline, isn't it? And no one really thinks about the misery behind that headline. But mobilizing enough soldiers is a problem only Ukraine can solve. Uh, the parliament is considering legislation that would increase the potential pool of recruits by about 400,000, in part by lowering the enlistment age from 27 to 25. But the proposal is highly unpopular, forcing elective officials to grapple with questions that cut to the heart of nationhood. Can they convince enough citizens to sacrifice their lives? And if not, are they willing to accept the alternative? Now, there are almost half a million dead Ukrainians now. And I noted that there was this little tiny uh, article in the in brief in the same paper. Uh, Ukraine President Zelensky has thanked New Zealand for its first con contribution towards Ukraine's defence in nine months. Now New Zealand's coalition government timed the second anniversary of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine with an announcement of $25.9 million in aid and an extension of its military training program. Financial support from Wellington has totaled just over $100 million in the past two years. I know, I saw that. You know, they're going around on buses, grabbing people off the street, sending them to the front lines where their life expectancy is sometimes measured in hours. I'm not arguing, you know, whether the war's right or, or wrong, but I would say if you imagine Ukraine's Mexico and uh, Russia as the US, and the US was pushing back against an encroachment by Russia or Russian um, interests into Mexico, I think that um, the New Zealand media is a little bit too rah, rah, rah about dwarfing the sweatshirt good. And again, look. Oh, and we've got bigger fish to fry. Fish to fry. Here. And this is the thing. I'm sorry. You know, it is what's going on. Any war. Doesn't matter. Middle East, Europe. Doesn't matter. Death is death is death. As we said right at the beginning of the show, every single one of those people that have died in Ukraine, every single one that's died in the Middle East, from either side, doesn't matter, Russian, Ukrainian, Gaza, Palestinian, or Jewish. Those are families that are all grieving. The dying has got to stop. And the fact that we've contributed $100 million towards it, now they will say, oh, it's to stop the dying. No, that's not going to stop the dying. Yeah, How's that, and, how and is that US, stopping the dying? The US uh, giving the Ukrainian forces cluster bomb munitions that are now being uh, shot via artillery into Russian cities, it's obscene. Yeah, you know, and now it's perpetuated this death of half a million people who, as I said, are having to be dragged off the streets by buses to feed into this military industrial yeah. complex, uh, BlackRock, interest serving bloodbath that mm. they've bought on themselves by pushing NATO uh, ever further east. Well, in Sweden now, just joined. So, well, I think it's all over by the shouting. Yeah, World War Three. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Well, I was kind of hoping to finish on a cheery note, but I don't have think you got succeeded. Cheery? Have I got something cheery? Well, Paula Bennett, actually, I did have a little thing. It looks like she might be taking a tilt at Wayne's job, do you think? Oh, well, yeah. She's sort of sticking up for the uh, bureaucrats, saying, yeah. it's, don't be mean to them. You yeah, don't be They're mean. They're just doing their job. They mean I'm, well. I, I want to be one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did have a little chuckle at that. Right. I think we'd better do it all again next week, eh? Well, yeah. We'll, we'll try and come back cheerier. <laughs> but we live in uh, we we're living in uh, in times force one to slap their face. Hey, and if you've got anything you want to share with us, twenty fifty seven is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio, of course, is the email. We'll do it all again next week, Pants Marty. Can't wait. All right, have a great week. 
This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Chick Radio. Before I share some feedback from last week's show, I just wanted to remind you that tickets are still available for the movie premiere, Buying Her. The Auckland screening is tonight at 6.30pm at the Rialto Cinema Broadway in Newmarket, Auckland, and on Friday in Tauranga, 7.30 at the Lux Theatre on Devonport Road. Each screening is followed by a Q&A panel and some time of networking. And you can get to meet Helen Taylor from Exodus Cry, who I've interviewed here on Counterculture twice before. So Auckland screening is tonight and Tauranga is on Friday. Tickets are available at buyingher.com. That's buyingher.com. Thank you so much for all the wonderful feedback here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Here is a selection from last week's show. Thank you, Marie, for another wonderfully intelligent show. I'd like to hear about the cancelling of arts and artists who ascribe to the Western tradition of beauty, truth and goodness. That's from Leslie. Leslie, that is a great idea. And I've got a couple of ideas of some guests that we could potentially uh, have interviews on that. So I'll see what I can do to hunt that out. Kamahiri should be held accountable for mismanagement of government funds. Charity status of his trust should also be questioned. Funding of a political party should be scrutinised more closely. And that's from Kingsley. Thanks, Kingsley. That's in regards to the interview I did with Karina Shields last week. Hi, can anyone let me know how much power the Maori king has? If he has power, then him and Mr. Luxon should read from the same paper, as well as all move on, as they say. And if you read the treaty differently, that's your problem. It is very much a ceremonial role. And I think it's it's one of those things, isn't it? It's always been a relationship between the crown and the kingi tanga movement of mutual respect, and uh, that is very, very paper thin at the moment. Now, this is from Brian. Who are these people and who are trying to change the midwife narrative? Well, Brian, it is the scope of practice and it is coming from the Midwifery Council and more importantly, those appointed to the Midwifery Council. And the really disturbing thing about this is they had uh, more than 90% negative submissions around the change of that scope and they were just completely ignored. So this is very, very much a uh, political decision and not one of the people who are, you know, most deeply affects. Hey, look, thank you so much for all the feedback that you have shared with me today. If you want to share anything that you've heard on this week's show or on previous shows, make sure you send me a text to 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Hey, I'll be back next week with Jodie Bruning. I'm really looking forward to catching up with her. Marty, of course, will be back and so much more. And I'll catch you all next week on RCR. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.